Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. I'm Eduardo Barca with co-host Citroen Socialist Andy Lipson and community organizing socialist Kenny Cepeda. We're online at what-s-left.webno.com. Uh, please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications and share your favorite episode wherever you found this episode. Uh, thank you for that. And jot down our information on, uh, from the episode notes. Um, today, we are joined by the great, legendary, wonderful, informative, and <laughs> great researcher, Alison McDowell. <laughs> Thank you for joining us again. She's a, a frequent contributor to here to What's Left. We always love inviting her here. Uh, since we've started our relationship with Alison McDowell, she's brilliantly informed us about many things. Uh, Alison McDowell is a mother and independent researcher in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She blogs at the intersection of race, finance, and technology at wrenchinthegears.com. Uh, we'll link to that in the episode notes. Um, and again, I remind folks that what began as an effort to slow privatization of public education in her very beloved city evolved into an investigation of globalized poverty management, euphemistically known as social impact investing. And she has spent years researching into predatory educational technologies, harvesting just new new oil, right? Data, everything data and blockchain with Alison. Those are synonymous to Alison Dow. So thank you very much for joining us today, Alison. I'm glad to be here. I, I love you guys. I'm glad to be back on a, on a slightly unusual topic. <laughs> yes, yes. Let us introduce that topic then. Um, so welcome everyone again. And we'll be doing it. And this time we'll be doing something different, um, an in-depth study and analysis of two great muralists, Diego Rivera and Jose Clemente Orozco. Uh, we will be exploring uh, different sides. Um, we'll be exploring Diego Rivera's, as Alison has put it, a techno-optimist and Jose Clemente Orozco's more techno-skeptic, no? or septic, as some others would say. <laughs> uh, but this will be uh, a slideshow that, or we'll be sharing a screen. So I invite the audience that is listening to the podcast to really come over to the YouTube channel or to BitChute or to Odyssey to really look at uh, the visuals here because we'll be doing, Alison has prepared amazing uh, presentation that I think will be worthwhile everyone's time and uh, maybe to relook at and revisit it as we'll be discussing uh, today specifically on this episode, we'll be discussing Diego Rivera's uh, murals and everything around modernity and technology and his take on the revolution and how it would supposedly have been had we stayed in the technological world, no, in medicine. So uh, that's what we'll be doing today. I apologize for the clicking in the background, I just turned it off. <laughs> All right, uh, so let's do this. Um, why don't we do a quick roundabout sharing why we are doing this? Um, it's a different episode, one that I'm quite interested and also very curious about, but um, I would like to know from everyone if we can share, um, beginning with Andy and then Kenny and then myself and then Alison, there, we'll take it from there, um, as to why we are doing this, um, proposed by Alison actually, and I very much appreciate it if she had said something about it. Uh, uh, why are we, so let's, why don't we start with um, Andy, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, um, well, first off, ever really since I met Allison two summers ago, my life has become increasingly difficult um, <laughs> with the reality of what's really happening. Um, and, 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 you know, and it's, it's, it's been a challenge to me being a socialist and me being a Marxist to how to integrate some of the things that I think are happening that she's describing, and we're seeing them unfold in real time. Uh, many of those things, 
Um, and so that has helped. It is, even though it's been distressing to, to hear about, it's been helpful to not be caught blindsided by some of these events that are taking place. Um, and, and it's a challenge. And I think in, in some ways it's forced me to, it's forced me to try to answer a question about what, why did all my socialists go one way? My socialist comrades go one way at this, at, during this time. And I went a different way. And I do think meeting people like Allison and Jake and others who were looking at this, this stuff in, through a slightly different lens is one of the reasons. And the lens that it started to get, get me to ask is really talking about the means of production. Um, is really talking, I mean, this word technology is, is tech, but Marxists have a word for it, means of production, the, the tools that are being constructed. And for the longest time, I, increasingly, I'm starting to have questions about, particularly as we see these tools go into biotech and we see the things that are getting, get more and more invasive of humanity and more and more destructive of humans. I, I, I start to question, um, are these means of production just, just a neutral thing, like a tipped ball that either the workers will grab or the capitalists will grab in the context of a revolution. And it's just a question of who gets to control them at the end of the day. Um, and, um, so that question of science and technology and socialism has really been one that's increasingly on my mind. And I think it led Allison to kind of go down this area. And Allison, if I remember right, you have an art history background. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, she proposed that we actually discuss this through the lens of two uh, people who are, I think, well, I think Orozco doesn't consider himself necessarily political in his art, but who were maybe would have been on the left. Um, and look at their art as a means of kind of looking at how socialists have viewed um, technology and what's a, another kind of view uh, that could that could come out of these two um, figures. Um, I want to say two things. This is probably going to be at least a two to three part episode. <clears throat> I, I don't know if we're, we're not going to be able to do it all in one part. At the very least, we're going to try to do Diego Rivera today. And if you are just listening, the um, the, the 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 slideshow it will be in the in the episode notes. You could go through the slideshow as as Allison and the rest of us go through it. So that's another way to do it. But um, that was what I hoped to do today, and I became interested. And um, this piece of artwork you see up here is Diego Rivera. It was named Man Man at the Crossroads of Time, but then later renamed when he when it was taken down in Mexico. It was made uh, Man Controller of the Universe. Universe. So that that's not as that's not as good a name. <laughs> so domination so built into that. <laughs> yeah, it gives you an idea where we're going on this. So um, I like to think of this as man at the crossroads of time, at the, at the very least. But you know, um, that's that's what I would say about this right now. For me, um, I think you know I'm, I'm on my own Marxist socialist journey. Uh, some people that have listened to my story, I lived in Nicaragua. You know, that kind of started. Uh, you know, some questions within me um, and then well COVID and uh, trying to inquire into what's happening you know what's behind the headlines uh, what's up with these vaccine passports you know uh, what's up with DARPA and involvement be behind all this stuff so it's led me through you know to a rabbit hole of technology and and you know in in the omnipresence nowadays you know and the acceleration of technology in our lives and so you know I have questions and um, you know uh, so I, I find I find this conversation as part of that journey you know and because I myself I've, I've always been intrigued by technology uh, I actually to relax 
I, uh, not just technology and science, you know, I, I actually look at documentaries on uh, quantum physics or, you know, mechanical engineering or uh, even weapons, honestly. Um, some of the people that I follow online, actually, their background are from the uh, military background in terms of engineering. Mm -hmm. And so, again, just uh, jumping back to the journey with you, Alison, um, yeah, I found that there's so many things that I was unaware of that I, I thought at face value they were benevolent or they could be used, just like Lipson said, for the benefit of, of society. So I, at the time, now I have more questions about, you know, the, the application of these technologies in, in, in terms of not just being a means of production, but actually not so much that as being more means of repression. You know, and, and so uh, I think it's interesting that you brought these uh, parallels, this conversation, Alison, uh, because it is unusual. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> art, right? And but it, it does represent a vision or two different um, visions of the future. And, and I think that 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 is a question that we're going to have to answer as people who resist, people who question uh, power. And uh, it's sad to see, you know, like we've said in other episodes, that the left, by and large, is not just shrugging by and large you know okay it's happening and at the same time there's a sector of the left that's actually welcoming you know a lot of these technologies into our lives um and every day if you're paying attention there's more and more uh, we saw a story about hawaii four days ago where they're using a darpa you know and, uh, i think boston dynamics robot to test a homeless people for covid Right. And so and then today in Frisco, Texas, they started delivering uh, with uh, Walgreens products. Google and Walgreens are partnering up to deliver products. So what does this mean for us for a future? You know, uh, when they're also putting guns on these machines, um, you know, in the context also of, you know, police resisting, you know, mm -hmm. mandates. And so I think that this conversation has implications for that in terms of what the vision of the world, of the futures. Um, well, let's see. I initially saw this um, topic being approached um, by Alison on our social media. So she had proposed it and it's really cool. I, um, I just thought I've been... I mean, I'm a member of four museums here in San Francisco, so I love art. And I thought this was amazing that we could finally do something like this on what's left and something that we can explore something and not so political, no? But um, but as we are doing this, I find that it's a little bit um, going to, um, it has ruined some of my love or appreciation for as well for um, the way that Diego Rivera had seen uh, technology being able to be used so it could be more, um, for a brighter future, more revolutionary future. Uh, and uh, I'm excited that we're going to explore this because it's not something that we sometimes, I think that we don't want to confront that this acceleration in technology and science um, is actually going to be a destruction of us. No, it's going to ruin us ultimately. And, uh, and I studied permaculture in 2010 and I still garden, I still um, do things um, in, in projects here in SF, uh, like community gardening here in my neighborhood or in my nephew's school, I, I still participate and support that. Um, but permaculture is a way to in incorporate indigenous and traditional knowledge um, from all 
indigenous backgrounds all over the con continents, not just in the global south, but all over even European indigenous uh, traditional knowledge. And, and it's a way to incorporate that into, as opposed to continuously destroy our earth through Western industrialized methods. And so uh, how do we then, uh, as someone who, I don't label myself, but I know that I'm an anti-capitalist, that's for sure. And, and how do we then incorporate um, a world where we can be modern, but how do, but also not get so advanced in a way that destroys the humanity of who we are, no? That is, I think, the exploration of all this. It's, it's really um, trying to awaken a part of us and that hopefully we realize that, you know, more of this tech is actually not that great. Blockchain and data and all of this is not natural to our existence. So I hope that we'll delve into that. Well, I started down this route a, a few months ago when sort of an acquaintance I had who, who lives in the area just shared an image on Facebook from these Detroit industry murals. And it was a, a panel that was in a series of this these 27 murals that were in this garden court. Um, it was the vaccination mural. <laughs> and it, you know, within the present context, it was quite striking to me. And it made me question like, what the heck was going on in 1932? That you're, you know, that there's this mural that even at the time caused quite a lot of controversy because of the the, the composition of it and, and what it, it meant. And so I didn't know a lot about Rivera other than, you know, sort of leftist and the part of the muralist movement, but I'd never really looked into him that much. And so I started looking around to try to make sense of this, this painting. And finding out that like his first commission in the United States with that was at the San Francisco stock exchange. And I go, well, that doesn't seem particularly socialist. And then like doing the work for the Rockefeller family. And I'm like, well, that doesn't seem particularly consistent either. And so, um, you know, sort of poking around in some of these things. And I think I put some things out on Twitter and then someone messaged me and they're like, do you know about Orozco? And I'm like, I don't. And they sent this link to um, this, very large scale mural series, it, which is in the library at Dartmouth College, which was put together around the same time in the early 30s. And um, it's sort of the epic of American civilization, but framed within a Mesoamerican context, which was very interesting because at that time in New England, like they were going through the quintessential sort of, um, you know, colonial revival-esque, you know, the late 20s and 30s, it was all about reviving the colonialism. And then you have Orozco up in, in creating this really epic mural series in this library. And so I thought, wow, well, that's quite an interesting contrast. So I pitched Andy, I'm like, part of the thing I've been struggling with from the, the left is that when I, you know, I'm relatively recent to all of this, the last five years coincided with my activism here in Philadelphia. And my entry point was more a community reading group that was coming from the black radical tradition, right? And then, and then it was amplified by, you know, friends that I had who were involved in the Standing Rock protest. So it was much, it wasn't a Western traditional Marxist lens. It was, it was an outsider framing. And so I, I, I never, because I'm such an amateur at all of these things, like I never really had heroes or things like, oh, you can't touch that because like that's untouchable. Like, so I'm just bumping around into things Thing, like, well, what makes sense? And a lot of what I, I felt is that what, what has resonated with me is this idea of um, like the colonization principle, um, 
which is very much in effect in the Mexican mural movement, right? And, and then how that is portrayed then in the United States and the way it's resonating forward into this new world of fourth industrial revolution, bio nanotechnology, right? And the means of production when in the synthetic biology world, possibly our bodies become the means of production. And like, not that we can go physically intervene and do work, but like literally our biological processes could literally turn us into a factory. And so that like even built on the work I had done before when I was sort of looking at ed tech in school saying, they're turning schools into factories. Like these kids are making value for tech companies and um, you know cloud computing companies with their unpaid labor in these schools now. You know all of this stuff is actually creating value and it's a factory. It's not just a you know off the cuff. Oh, schools are a factory model of education. Like literally, they are factories. And now it's it's much more even horrific for me to think about the synthetic biology piece. And so when I went back and I started looking into Rivera's work in Detroit. And some of it included pharmaceutical companies and seeing how far back these systems go. And the more I looked at it, thinking about, um, because it turns out he actually has quite a number of ties into esoteric realms. The idea potentially um, the use of art in symbolic languaging and even potentially creating energetic imprints on space um, around certain ideas and philosophies that resonate forward, you know, and, you know, and incorporate past history and then resonate forward. So um, that's kind of what got me started. I don't know. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, that, that, that's wonderful. That, I mean, that's, that's good, Alison, and then we can transition over. Okay. So, so, you know, I, I had this grand ambition, like this would be wonderful. Like we could compare Rivera and Orozco because they seem to have sort of a different view, at least around technology. Um, and then what I forgot to mention too is, the thing I've been struggling with in this past, you know, you know, pandemic era, biosurveillance era, is the role of the material realm and a spiritual realm. Um, because if we start to, and, and from the left, you tend to deal with materialism. It's very much a material-focused thing. And um, once you move into nanotechnology, then is that material? Because you can't really actually sense it unless you have electron microscope. Does that count as material? And then where does the spiritual fit in? Because if you're limited to the material realm for your place of engagement and struggle, the odds are not good. <laughs> so um, to me, Orozco tips more into some of the more metaphysical, but it turns out Rivera does too. So the materialism and the left beyond just simply the technology sort of struck me. So um, just as far as context, um, because I didn't know a whole lot, you know, about the Mexican revolution and the interests that are very much interwoven with the oil interests and standard oil and the Rockefellers. Um, but Rivera had spent a lot of his youth training as an artist in Europe and then came back in the early 1920s. And during that time, after the, the revolution had sort of solidified, um, uh, Obregón had brought in someone called Jose uh, Vasconcelos, who was going to head the Department of Education. And at that time, this was someone who um, felt very strongly about the importance of public art. And the reason that the murals were really central would be that they would be in public spaces and they would be painted, a lot of these were frescoes, so they were literally painted into the material of the building so that they could never be removed and used as a commodity, right? They would never be privately owned and taken out of the public realm and sold off as a product. 
And so that was sort of the key framing and that the murals were a central element in educating the public um, about history and creating these big ideas for, for a large numbers of people who did not have like traditional literacy, that the visuals would convey these big images, these big messages. And so the three main um, muralists who are sort of widely known are um, uh, Cisqueros, uh, Rivera and Orozco. And so that's sort of this idea of creating this Mexican art form based in public display, sort of epically scaled public displays with an educational purpose. Um, and, and it said that like he commissioned the painters at Mason's Wages. So these were not painters who were lifted up above the workers, they were simply workers who were doing this important task of educating the public um, and solidifying um, the ideals of the revolution. So that's sort of how the Mexican muralist movement came to be. Um, this is one of the first ones. This is actually by Fernando Leal um, and it was commissioned in, I think, San Ildefonso Preparatory School in Mexico City. And so you can see part of it was unifying um, the indigenous culture with um, the Spanish culture and bringing these things together and creating a truly Mexican uh, form of artwork. Um, and so I, I thought that that cap captured, captured that pretty well. Um, so, so uh, you know, we've talked about Rivera being the optimist or Roscoe being the skeptic. Um, one of the conversations I keep getting into with people a bit is around um, the, the technology. And a lot of times what's thrown up to me is sort of like, it's not the tool, it's how you use it or who uses it. And so I think that's something I'm interested in talking a, a little bit about is, you know, Audre Lorde, I put in this quote here about the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. So within the context of these technological systems, um, were these ever the tools of the people or were they always master's tools? And I, I don't know that there's any one way to think about that. Um, but I think in the, the top image, which is from the, the, uh, the Detroit industry murals, it's showing the Ford plant. In my sense of anal analyzing this image is the sort of the power of the worker, the strength of the worker in these systems. Um, and this is an, an interracial group of workers working together to, you know, progress, right? That is the, the progress. Um, below that is, is uh, a detail from an Orozco painting uh, from 1940. It was commissioned by the Museum of Modern Art. And it was, I think, um, like bomber and tank. It was a military um, image. And I, I pulled it largely for the chain um, because I, I tweeted earlier today, I said, you know, I think that Orozco would have a good sense of what blockchain was about. Because for me, that that image below the, the chaining of people <laughs> really speaks to the, the blockchain where someone sits, it's just a tool, it's how you use it. And I would say, I don't know, I don't think it was ever our tool. So I don't know, do you guys have any thoughts on the, the yeah. opening introduction? Yeah, I, um, I definitely wanna say one thing because um, the, the, I found two quotes, because I think you said something interesting about the mural movement, I didn't know that murals might be a, a, a basis for educating folks. Mm -hmm. And I think Diego Rivera might've thought that, but I'm not sure Roscoe would have thought that um, because I want to use these two quotes and I think we'll keep those pictures up there because I think they're instructive because here's what Diego Rivera said in, in many ways about his art and being an artist. He goes, this, these are both quotes from these guys in the twenties, okay. um, not in their twenties, but like during the, the 1920s. 1920s. Okay. I don't know how old they were, um, but so it's at the same political time. These are two quotes from them. And Rivera said, 
To be an artist, one must first be a man vitally concerned with all the problems of social struggle, struggle, unflinching and portraying them without concealment or evasion, never shirking the truth as he understands it, never withdrawing from life. As a painter, his problems are those of his craft. He is a workman and an artisan. As an artist, he must be a dreamer. He must interpret the unexpressed hopes, fears, and desires of his people and of his time. He must be conscious of his culture. His work must contain the whole substance of morality, not, not in content, but rather by sheer force of, his, of its aesthetic facts, okay? Which that's Rivera, right? And Orozco said this, he goes, the real work of art like a cloud or a tree has absolutely nothing to do with morality or immorality, with good or evil, with wisdom or ignorance, or with virtue or vice. A painting should not be a commentary, but the fact itself. Not a reflection, but light itself. Not an interpretation, but the thing to be interpreted. Everything that is not purely uh, and exclusively the plastic geometric language subjected to the inescapable laws of mechanics expressed by an equation is a subterfuge to conceal uh, impotence. It is literature, politics, philosophy, whatever you will, but it's not painting. Um, And in that, I really hear Orozco saying, my art is like, like I imagine him putting his art on these murals just so it could be art on the walls and people could experience it and that's it, that's, we're done. I could see Diego Rivera saying, this is for the people, this is to move people in a particular direction to express what I see in the world, but with, a, with, an, with an aim towards educating. Um, and I do think there's some difference there in terms of, um, that I, I wanna highlight. I think it's useful. I mean, I think it's interesting once we get a little bit more into Rivera's life, <laughs> the extent to which he his life embodied that particular quote, if it's it's early on in the 20s, because the tra- the trajectory that he took, I right. would say, um, there's and, one thing to write it, there's another thing to live it. Right. And one thing that, again, we'll see, and I, I kept on seeing this in his pictures, and you, you can somewhat see it in my picture back here, but you the Diego Rivera draws humans and machines as sort of one thing almost, like they're combined and bound together as if a single organism. Implied in there could be a critique, implied in there could be beauty and could be a possibility. Um, but, uh, you know, I think you can see in Orozco, he does not have that. He's, he, he looks at it, he's like, this is dehumanizing. This is, this is actually a humanity getting away from itself. Um, and Diego Rivera clearly does not necessarily see that he he sees in that in these humans connected to these machines possibility and something else that's possible out of it and i think most socialists and this is how i came up in socialism view have that view of revolution as in humans with means of production moving and getting hold of that towards a a new kind of society i was going to add a bit more context to what um you had said earlier, Alison, which is that, you know, I, I, I'm Mexican, so I, I grew up in, in Mexico seeing a lot of the names that um, that are here in the streets and, and the avenues. And so uh, Alberto Obregón was a very uh, influential person in the 1920s. He was very much the person who was going to uphold the constitution that came after the Mexican revolution. So I'm just adding more context to it. So yes, he did. He did. So I'm just adding context to this. Yes, he did. Uh, um uh, had uh, sponsored or had uh, a government that was able to pay for artists at that time. There was a lot of reforms during that time. Uh, it wasn't the revolution that um, Villa or uh, Emiliano Zapata had looked for. Uh, he had broken away from those revolutionary leaders, but at that time 
he was part of uh, uh, the revolution at the of uh, the Mexican Revolution. He just more reformist more than revolutionary. And so yes, there was a, a very boom at this time of Diego Rivera's time. There was a lot of art, uh, education reforms, uh, labor reforms, uh, land reforms in Mexico. Uh, the relationship with the Catholic Church had also changed at this time. Um, there was um, more separation between uh, church and state after the 1917 uh, um, constitution. And um, in Obregón's time, it was the US-American uh, um, Mexican relationship was finally recognized and, and there was a more diplomatic relationship between these two, which turned out not to be the best, of course, later on. But I'm just saying that yeah. there was this uh, recognition between these two countries, um, between the Mexican and US-American relationships. And uh, so there was a lot of things happening. It was a golden age, an artist, poet, all of this. People would come from all over Latin America to Mexico at this time. So uh, it's interesting. I think that this will, just adding a little bit more context to this uh, from Obregón. And, but of course, he wasn't the revolutionary that Mexicans right. wanted. And lastly, I should state that the Mexican Revolution was ignited largely by the anarchist, uh, oh, I forget his first name, Flores Magón. Uh, which he was an anarchist and then would later seek exile in the USA and then came back and uh, organized uh, the labor movement in Mexico. Um, so I don't think we should forget his name. But mm -hmm. going back to this, so on forward to this, I just want to provide more context to this. Uh, so there was a lot of public uh, murals and um, it was a way to inspire the masses. It was a way to be able to share with people what, you know, Mexican society reflected on, or just worker society really. And I think it's also important to, uh, at least from what I know from the Mexican Revolution, you know, that what followed from that, you know, was 60 years of rule by the Revolutionary Party, right, by, ruled by the technocratic class mm -hmm. and represented by Diego Rivera. So I think that's also something that has shaped my idea of revolution, you know, and stuff to be aware of, you know, that, and I think we're living through a similar period, but I think we'll get into that later, you know, technocratic dominance over you know, the peasant, you know, so the Diego Rivera type versus the uh, via, you know, the peasants, you know, the, the, the people from the, from the El Campo, you know, the, the fields. And I want to say, and we can maybe get into this, uh, like in the next round when we do Orozco, but part of it is, I, I, my understanding is that his framing around re revolution was somewhat more skeptical because he was concerned about the violence and things, not necessarily ending up the way that it had once. So he, his, he, he was somewhat more reserved about the potential for revolution or what it, it actually meant. And I, it wasn't during an, a military engagement, but I think actually a celebration, like a firework celebration of the revolution that he actually blew his hand off. <laughs> so all of the work that he did, he, he only did it with one hand. And so like, it, it, again, it wasn't a, a military engagement, but it was connected with sort of a nationalist, like revolutionary uh, celebration. And so that's sort of part of his framing is that um, more tempered, I guess, idea of what, what the prospects of what the on the ground reality of revolution looked like. So, um, so just as far as context, I, I'm trying to remember, and maybe I can look into a little bit more, but um, by the, the early 20s is where these early commissions were for San Ildefonso, uh, 1922. And then by the late 20s, the work had sort of dried up. And so uh, both Rivera and Roscoe ended up in the United States doing commissions. And so the, the, most of the pieces that I'm looking at are pieces that were pieces done in the United States. 
um, their body of work is much larger, but focused on those particular pieces with the center point of the Detroit industry mural. So this is right around the time of the height of the depression. And so just for context is, you know, these bread lines. So in the United States, at least um, the patronage of sort of these elite financiers and making these murals and choosing to um, uh, patronize Mexican muralists and bring them out of their uh, cultural geography based work and then bring them up into the United States and use them in a certain way to convey a certain messaging, I think was very intentional. And this was happening at the time when, you know, many, many people were going hungry. Um, Fast forward to today's context. Um, this is just our current situation, again, because a lot of this will be talking about technology and biotechnology. Um, it's kind of like hidden behind the little things, but um, there's this black rock with sort of toxic uh, cell divisions above it. And that's a, a detail from the, the Detroit mural series. And so as we're moving forward, our current contemporary context, pulling it forward is looking at black rocks, connection to health investing, Blackstone acquiring Ancestry.com DNA and, and Black AI and in these, he literally is putting the Blackstones in, in, in this, um, the Detroit series. So that's sort of back and forth in, um, in this. And this is a detail from one of the murals. Um, again, and sort of my question is, and Andy, you, you spoke to it before, um, it can be read in a number of ways, right? Like there are potentials or the man is consumed in the machine. And I think within this detail, it's more the latter, the, the individuals being consumed in this mass of machinery and overwhelmed by it. Um, this is one of the, the images of, of actually a Rose Coast first commission in the United States at Pomona College um, in California in their dining hall, which is odd. <laughs> like it's sort of a foyer to their dining hall, but it's actually Prometheus. And so I think what we're grappling with is, you know, bringing the fire to the people, right? What does it mean to take from the gods and then bring down? And within this mural context, it is, um, on the one hand, people, some people are anxious for it. On the other hand, people turn away and the navigating of that knowledge. What does it, what happens when the knowledge comes down um, from above and in, into the, the human sphere and, and how is it, how is it managed? Um, Can I note one thing about yeah. um, the, this is since we're talking about Diego Rivera is, um, and I, I don't, are, do you talk at all or mention your slideshow his, he went to the Soviet union in like 1927 and 1928. Do you mm -hmm. mention that? Okay. You so, can. That's fine. Okay. Um, cause I mean, it is, he goes there and obviously it's at the time when the depression is not quite there, but, but the twenties is not a good time for, for many in the United States. Although for his friends, it's going pretty well. Diego Rivera, right. Cause he's, he's, he knows many of the, he's connected to some of the wealthy circles. Um, but, uh, he's a, he's a supporter of the Russian revolution and goes to, Soviet Russia in 1927, 1928, commissioned for, to make murals there. And apparently it was a very disappointing experience for him to, to, to go there. Um, and he actually was kicked out for anti, anti-Soviet, uh, ideas and maybe anti-Soviet associations or in somewhat implied possibly with artists at the time who might've been more favor to favorable Trotsky versus Stalin. Um, but I, from, I, I imagine that was a blow. 
And I imagine um, it was for all the talk of optimism that is implied. I think when when you when when you when there was so much hope in the Russian Revolution that people had, but in the early twenties, um, I cannot imagine that he went there and was like anything other than uh, struggling with the idea of the possibility of revolution after that, particularly when he's kicked out. So. Well, well, part of my question in, in some of this, and I'll get into like his, his history, is just how invested he was in those particular ideals, being that during the revolution itself, he spent most of that time in Europe. <laughs> so he was in his training for like 15 years in Europe. That's a long time. It wasn't like he went for a couple years and then came back. He literally like had multiple partners, children, traveled Europe, like was very, in my, my sense, like you know, I don't know how exactly he supported himself, like how, like initially he got money from the governor of Veracruz to go. Um, but there was a considerable amount of time when revolutionary action was taking place that he wasn't anywhere near Mexico. And then later, and so it's, part of it is I wonder how much of it is, was opportunistic, like in terms of also that work, because it didn't feel like when, I, and I'll have some images later that he did watercolor sketches, but not, no, it seems like if you had a certain experience, you would incorporate that more directly in a, in a more formal way into the, the your body of work, which I don't know that happened, but let's see. Uh, this is talking about, um, this is the Prometheus mural in the, in the hall at Pomona and it's sort of a description. And I do have, for those of you guys who wanna look at the slide deck, like all of the sources are here. So people can, part of the reason I have such a big slide deck was I was really interested in it. And so I wanted to just to create like a giant bibliography of material because people might go back and have, you know, a different analysis. But the idea of, you know, the humans, you know, just living their lives and then some people accepting this new knowledge and some people turning away and life goes on, people are messy and there's this great sacrifice and it doesn't really like for Prometheus, it doesn't turn out very well, right? Like he does this great act and then his future isn't so great. And I think in many respects, and maybe that's some of the bitterness a bit in his tone earlier is that I think he felt like he had certain ideals he was trying to convey that didn't land. And, and he, he just felt like, like they're not getting what I'm saying, which, you know, I can empathize a little bit sometimes with that. Um, but they, like, he's got this knowledge, he's putting it out, they're not getting it, whatever, like this is Prometheus and this is sort of the, the framing. Um, and then let's see later on. So this was in, um, this is later. So Pomona was the first, uh, then he did some work at Dartmouth before he did the whole mural project. He came, initially they were looking at wanting Rivera um, and then they pivoted to inviting Orozco instead. And so he did a few paintings before he started the mural series. Um, he's already talking about the creative man escaping the machine. And a lot of the images are similar to what we saw in the, the bomber tank um, mural from 20 years later. Um, and then uh, like he was more of the skeptic. So um, let's see. So the, in the late twenties, uh, you know, he's working with Dartmouth he's looking at the reign of the mechanistic principle. And this image over here is actually from a, a later mural in Guadalajara um, at the, the Hospicio, uh, which was a, an orphanage and a hospital and where elderly people stayed. And this was in their library and it's quite crazy, but this is actually Cortez. 
and he's very, very clear about his position on technology by this point, that there's an angel up here that is a machine. It's a mechanical angel that is whispering in Cortez's ear as, you know, this death and destruction is being wrought on, you know, the indigenous people of, of Mexico. And there are other images in this series that actually have like two-headed horses with a robot, a robot dog that is very similar to Boston Dynamics <laughs> robot dog spot. I mean, it's the eerie how close he was. Yeah, Ospicio Cabanas in Guadalajara. Um, so I'll just read it. So he, I guess he, his work resonated with Lewis Mumford and it says as Mumford wrote in 1934, war mechanization, mining and finance played into each other's hands. Mining was the key industry that furnished the sinews of war and increased the metallic contents of the original capital hoard, the war chest. And on the other hand, it furthered the industrialization of arms and enriched the financier by both processes. For Orozco, as for Mumford, industry and domination were two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. And for me, my framing of, in terms of understanding it towards present day technology is that most of this technology is war machine technology <laughs> for what it's worth. Like, I mean, it's coming yeah. out of, and some of it is being birthed out of academia, but a lot of it with uh, corporate finance that is tied to the war machine. So, no, I, I think that's an important point. We like... Look, at one level, I hear about these things, implants that'll help paralyze people or something else that'll help people see colorblind, you know, go from being being able to distinguish colors. But you've, you've pulled back to where all these things start. And it's like what Kenny said, it's DARPA over and over again. Um, and those are the, they, 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 they seem to want to conceal what the real intentions of these technologies are um, hidden behind seemingly these side products of benefits that have nothing to really do with who, who is the original I, initiator of the ideas and, and what they're really being made for. I'll point out, there's one other quote here. I pulled some of these really long pieces, but it, it talked about that. It says he was a humanist whose vision of the future entailed liberation from the factory. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's a different version than a typical left version, right? Yeah. For the, yeah. It's the idea, like if we have a cooperative, if we run the factory, if we have then it can be good. And he's saying he sees the factory as a, something that doesn't, that can't be a benefit for society. That's, that's different. Yeah. It's very different. I, I'd like to just point out how he saw uh, Hernan Cortes coming, that, that coming over to the Americas as that representation of just colonization, capitalism, but as the industry and domination, it's like, this is what, tech was going to bring no and it, it so happens it to be europeans white but um i think that jared diamond um, the author of um guns germs and steel really talks about the reasons for why these uh these continents were faded the way they are because of just the resources that they had and so it's not necessarily that it's inbred or inherited because they're white people but rather because because they also had indigenous people on in their lands but rather it's more of like the reasons why they had uh, they, the resources that they had, like steel and guns and germs, and be able to colonize different countries. But the fact that they came over and Orozco saw that as uh, that is what technology is going to be for us is interesting to me in the way that I didn't think of uh, colonizers or or I or or I didn't think of. Uh, um, 
you know, the colonization of the Americas, is, the technology is going to do that, just that, destroy us mm. and not and going to defeat us is the, and, and our humanity, who we are. Yeah, and, and just if I understand this right, Orozco is not talking about 10 years from, like, if he's doing this in 1930s, he's not talking about what's coming in 1940s and 50s. He's saying this, this view of, of capitalism is what is happening exactly right then. He's not predicting Boston dynamics. Like, and I, I can see it now that something's weird going on. But if you had asked me to have this view back in the 30s and to see the 30s as it's being constructed as essentially, um, what's this guy's name again? Um, uh, uh, Cortez coming and, and, and killing humans, like that in the, 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 the creation of industry in that way, that is definitely not how like we as Marxists talked about it. And, 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 and um, it's, it's me, it's pretty interesting to me that he had that foresight because it's easy for me to see that process. Now, I don't think I would have seen it back in the thirties. And we are now behaving, all of us here in this society is now behaving as uh, worshippers of like the tech, the accelerated tech and the accelerated sciences, no, and 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 wanting it to come. And yes, it'll release us or free us, or almost this 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 innocence of this naivety that we are as just accepting everything that's coming our way. Uh, I see it a lot on the left, embracing so much of surveillance, so much of you know the the new the new era of tech, um, and and and. I mean, we haven't learned really from history. You know, I've been uh, diving into the rabbit hole of free will, you know, and like the two spectrums, right? Of the full free, you know, free will and like not no free will at all in society. And so just in that context, I'm looking at Cortes here, even he himself, you know, is not a, a, a like a person that has free will, right? Someone else is, is indicating instructions. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there is, a, a, you know, a, a chain chain of command, even mm. the, robot, the robotic looking uh, Cortez, um, and so I find that very curious um, because, uh, yeah, in the context of you know who decides what this technology is for, um, yeah, and so it, it seems also you know he's making a commentary of you know it, it comes from a superior power you know um, of sorts uh, that it, abstract in a way to me. But the, one of the other things that I've been looking into more lately too is is the idea of like consciousness because I feel like really what's happening is is a a battle for consciousness or understanding mind and where consciousness lives and how to engineer it and um, looking back even to I found out about this person Pierre uh, Teilhard de Chardin who is a Jesuit priest who it he was spent uh, 20 years in China and like was part of the discovery of the Peking man. And he was an early father of AI, like theorizing AI in the forties. And he um, essentially created the idea of the no sphere. So this idea of sort of like a, a collective consciousness like around the world. And so, you know, just thinking about like the angel, right. But is the angel, like you get entangled with ideas and is it, is it an angel or is it a frequency that there's this noosphere that like tags into your mind and your consciousness and then you can choose how to engage with it or not? And yeah, it's a good question, Kenny. I don't know about the whole free will thing. 
I can sort of picture that angel as the no sphere and some sort of predatory energy, you know, dangling, you know, messing around in your mind and seeing if you'll bite on it, you know? All right, well, here, I'll keep going. Let me see the next. Um, okay, and so this is just an image of a detail from the Detroit Mural Project. Um, it's a small image at the end and one of these sort of narrow bands, but it actually is speaking about globalization and it builds on the, the previous slide talking about sort of domination um, and resource extraction that literally um, they were already, the, the River Rouge plant of the, the Fords, they were looking to control all the raw materials. So they would own all the mines, all the lumber um, and on, on the, the, the right-hand side, this is uh, the Brazilian uh, rubber plantations. And then on the, the other side are the, the, the docks. And it's, it's fascinating to me that the fish then turn into boats. So the, the fish in Brazil turn into these mechanized boats on the one hand. And then you've got the freighter, which was very early, you know, in terms of global transit. And literally this thing that that's from the curator at the museum described it as being based on an Aztec life and death mask, that there's a face, you know, a, a face with flesh on one side and a skull on the other and the star in the middle. So to me, it's, it's very clear um, the predatory nature, the intended predatory nature of resource extraction. Now the curators always spin it. They say, well, it could be good. It could be bad. It just depends on like, you know, how you use it or what the, what the future holds. If it's, if it ends up be a bad thing or a good thing, maybe it could be good. Um, but literally the, the, the guy who's harvesting the rubber looks like emaciated and it doesn't look, I mean, and in fact on this dock, it almost looks like a gun out there. It doesn't look promising. Yeah. And it's important to remember, I think also that one of the, for all the people, revolutionaries at the time, they're in the thirties and the twenties and the thirties who would have even had their criticisms of the Soviet union. One of the claims that they make of the superiority of the Soviet system was its growth in its economy during the same time when the, the so-called capitalist countries were in, in the decline in the twenties and thirties, that they did not see themselves subject to the, the business cycle in the same way. Um, and, you know, that, that became later uh, people who would then, and this was true for Diego Rivera. Diego Rivera was like, yes, Sputnik, you know, Soviet Union is, is better than the, than, than the United States. Um, and so that view, that's not just Diego Rivera. That was an entire view of all communists, Trotskyists, uh, communist party people or Trotskyists to basically those who were supporters of the Soviet Union or critical of the Soviet Union we're saying there is something better about the way that the Soviet Union is run based on the fact that they're of their productivity in relationship to the productive productivity declines that were being seen in the United States at the time and in, and in, and the rest of global capitalism. So even, even revolutionaries were keeping score through a process of who's, who's, who's doing more of the, of the stuff you see in those murals essentially. But it's very enigmatic to me this particular image right because there's nothing heroic I mean and this is being prepared for the, the Ford company I mean they're the cap the uber capitalist um, that makes it look like an empowered worker in this particular image I mean when you you're putting like the death skull on the top of the thing um, I mean it could be that he's just showing that capitalists are not good but um, I don't know. It doesn't really looks like it's looking like worker power to me per se, but I, th I found this as an interesting image. I think to me, 
uh, sorry, uh, last sorry. week, um, you know, it's, it speaks to the present. You know, we know that we're emulating nature, right, to replace nature of sorts. Um, you know, like making uh, drones everywhere, and you know that transition. Biomimicry. <laughs> yeah, and, and so um, I just find it interesting. You know that uh, it's uh, that notion is not new. We think we've progressed. You know, but this this notion of emulating nature to replace nature and dominate nature, you know, and, and, and basically um, being coming in, like, I, I don't know if uh, Alan Watts, I heard him say something along the lines of there is a massive difference between thinking you're of this world versus you coming to this world. Because if you come into this world, you come to dominate the world, you know, versus if you are of this world, you're, you're part of it, you're, you're, you're part of the ecosystem. Um, and so I do hear what your lips and you're saying is uh, I found myself making that same argument, uh, you know, in my younger Marxist journey of, you know, just uh, elevating the Russians prowess in achieving um, technological progress in such, in such a short time, uh, despite the, you know, having lost 80% of their industrial capacity in the Second World War. And so, again, just not even interrogating whether that technology, you know, is conducive to a better life for humans, because uh, regardless, because even that productivity came at a, at a at a great cost of human in nature, and, and so I do, you know, now seeing this gives me pause into questioning those, you know, that approach of elevating technological progress as uh, or equating that to human progress to. Uh, betterment of society and lives in a better future. Well, and for me, it's a lot of, of like the anthropocentric focus too. I mean, which is different than like you said, being of the world, being integrated with all of the other beings. Like that tree makes me really sad, <laughs> you know, to go put makes a bunch of tires to put on cars. This is just a little bit more introduction. We'll go into this a little bit more later, but within the Dartmouth mural that Orozco had, um, you know, they were talking about, uh, the dehumanization of the human spirit and particularly in schooling of cookie cutter children. And so that's why I think having a second episode focused on Orozco, um, this, this one is going to focus a little bit more on industry and labor. But I think that the Orozco conversation, especially in looking at, because I do think he was actually an, more of an educator. He had a very clear ideas of what he thought about education, whether or not he thought of his art as being educational, and maybe there's a difference there, but he has a, a quite a biting critique around at least the academy and formal education. So um, the idea of, of technology creating these cookie cutter children and mass conformity um, is part of the technological system. So we'll go into that more um, in the next issue, but- um, Which is what our schools are, no, Alison? Pardon me? Which is what our schools are, no? I know, I know. I feel like I feel so duped. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know because like you're in the machine and while you're in the machine, you, you fight to save the machine. Right. I mean, yeah, that's where you are. So, um, you know, and this is from the, the Dartmouth mural and again, Cortez and sort of the, the epic of American civilization and, you know, the, the colonization and the ships are burning and then the new, you know, the new era has come and, and you can sort of see the machines there on the right hand side of that image. Mm -hmm. But this mural here on the left, actually it was mostly, I think, painted by um, 
George Juan Crespo de la Serna, like one of his assistants, but he conceptualized it. And I thought it was really interesting to me that he chose centaurs. So if you picture the Prometheus is the central image and it's in this alcove and there are these two narrow panels, one on either side. So one is Zeus and, and Hera going, oh my gosh, you know, took the fire and gave it to the people. Our, our time is up. And then I'm facing that is sort of the, the agony of the centaurs. And it's quite shocking, actually. Like, I don't see a whole lot of art that really features the centaurs, but it, they're being wrapped in a serpent. And this is like a centaur mother and a baby centaur. And they're being like burned up and like grotesquely, you know, squeezed to death. Um, like their age is up. Um, which ironically is that we're now moving into the age of the centaurs, which is the human machine uh, hybrid cyborgs. So I just, I wanted to sort of point point out the, the resonance of that imagery. Um, okay, so the image, the vaccination panel. <laughs> so this is what did it for me. This is sort of what got me started on, was someone posted this image. And it's very strange. I mean, if you if you imagine, um, it's this was part of this Detroit mural series. It was in a room that was formerly a garden room in the museum that he was given over by the Ford Foundation, Edsel Ford. Um, and this is one of the smaller murals. Um, and in this, I sort of have an image. I'll talk about this a little bit more, but it's shaped as a nativity scene. It's quite creepy because there's actually like a dead animal under the sheet here. You can see their little feet. I don't know what kind of animal and these animals were for the serum of the vaccinations. And evidently pharma the pharmaceutical industry was a major industry for Detroit. I had no idea, the Park Davis company. Um, but as we consider vaccination today and the, the, the larger context, um, got me thinking to, I spent some time in Austin a couple weeks ago with Jason and my friend Lynn, and we went around to all these places. And one of the major forces in nanoelectronics is this guy, James Tour, and he has patented laser-induced graphene. He's like, I can turn anything carbon into graphene. And then we know that graphene is being used as an adjuvant um, in a variety of, it's being explored for its use in vaccinations, if not People have done investigations of the current ones, but there's much material about it being used as an adjuvant. And so I got to thinking, um, and our our pictures are kind of covering it over, but there's um, part of it is they make graphene in these furnaces. And so I feel like symbolically there is a connection between sort of transfiguration, um, the crucible of the furnace. And, and the transformation of humanity in the centaur-like age that's coming. And so uh, there's a detail here from one of the industry murals with the furnace, and I'm sort of equating it a little bit now with the graphene furnace and the graphene and the vaccines. But this, this was sort of the main image that drew me in and said, well, what's going on with, with Rivera with this image? So I don't know, do you guys have any initial thoughts about it? I mean, this just shows to me the um, admiration of science that Diego Rivera had. Now there's another mural, I forget when it was done. It was um, the cardiology mural. It was a mural on the progression of how, um, it, the, it, it, the institution of cardiology, it just depicts, I forget the details of it, but maybe we'll post it here and in somewhere, somewhere if you want to, Alison. But it, it just shows how Diego Rivera had this, 
admiration towards the sciences. No, um, that, that's what comes to mind for me. I, I, I just also feel sometimes the neglected part of all this is just how much of experimentation was done, as we know historically, even before. Um, in like in Germany, for example, on peoples and and on Jews, the experimentation has done to advance technology, right? And people um, forget that so much suffering has come because of it. Just real quick on that, uh, experimentation has happened and it's still happening. Yeah, I mean, um, the most obvious one, uh, obviously, uh, there was a story that broke out about the CDC funding you know, puppy, or like experiments on dogs that are bred and like they're held in these cages so they, you know, get eaten alive by these insects or whatever. But the point is that this stuff is still happening. Uh, you know, there's obviously side effects for people in studies. Um, and so people are still subjected, people in life in general, I think still subjected to uh, cruel, you know, in questionable uh, tactics in the name of progress in science. Um, in, yeah. Well, I would go a step further than that to say that literally yesterday, when the EU, when, there, when the vaccines were given to approval to be used on five, through 11, five to 11 year olds, emergency youth author, authorization, these COVID vaccines, the people in, in there said openly, we will find out how, if they work by, by essentially, the, we're doing the experiment now. Like we have to put it into the kids in order to find out if it's going to work or not. And that's like openly said in the, in the FDA part of the FDA discussions of this. So I look at, I look at this thing and it, and it, and it is what Eduardo said. It is. I, and I don't just think of this in terms of Diego Rivera. I am looking at this through the lens of socialists and Marxists of the time. And I think there is a, there it's, I mean, this is literally what's that called? This is the nativity scene. There is a reverence for science and you see it here. And those three guys back there are the three wise men. And these, these, these animals are the barn animals. And there is uh, mother Mary and the father is, you know, I don't know, Joseph or whatever. And there's the baby who's being vaccinated is the, is young Christ. And that's, the, but that's the notion. And, and what, what that guy is doing with the mi microscope is he's essentially looking deep into the insides of a, of a dead animal. To, to find out more. Um, and so, I mean, look, if, if, if this last two years hadn't happened, I would have had a different view about this whole thing. Um, and, uh, but this is it, this is what we're seeing, you know? And it's like, and this is the, the socialists today are literally praising these vaccines as modern saving, saving us from death, in the same way that this painting is. And, and so I think it is important to see that continuum of, of the left, of, of, of people who've, who are trying to fight for revolution, getting caught, I would say, in a trap of, um, of, of essentially, what is it, in, in, praising and praying, creating a religion out of, the, of this tool, which was an experimental tool being used on humans, which itself displaced other medicinal ways of uh, treating people. Um, and, you know, so, yeah, it's very, it's very striking. And it's very, I feel like it's very revealing in that painting. Well, I got my attention. <laughs> uh, let me see. Okay. So, yeah, so it, this was very controversial at the time. I'm, um, and 
Ironically, because like now the Vatican is the one that's pushing all the transhumanist technology, biotechnology, um, that the, the, the various religious leaders like were outraged. Now, I think in a certain extent, um, and actually it's interesting because this last paragraph, um, and, and Ford played it up, like they, they loved this controversy. So I think that there's a certain amount of showmanship for some of this stuff. And I think if you consider that perhaps some of this is... Um, propaganda and energetic imprint, like getting this attention. And in fact, perhaps that composition was meant to draw in this energetic attention onto this installation, um, achieved its goal. Um, at the the um, the last paragraph of this, this newspaper article talks about um, in the biography of uh, Frida Kahlo that they described in the incident where the, the churches and everyone were protesting um, this particular panel, the vaccine panel, that the factory workers volunteered to stand guard which which left Rivera euphoric, right? So the, the workers stood in and said, no, no, we, we, we're with you on this, right? And so again, in a, a strange twist of fate, because now clearly most of the churches are now in, aligned with the biotech industry. Um, but there, in that moment, there was this sort of materialist version versus a faith-based approach. Um, that now everybody has sort of consolidated and everybody's pushing the same thing. But I think from the worker thing, it, it's consistent back then, at least that's according to the story. That's how the story goes. Well, um, I would say that that's, and then that, that story of what happened back then, workers versus uh, people of faith, we are seeing this replayed in education with teachers basically drawing, drawing up petitions to have kids, young people vaccinated and parents trying to save themselves from that. Um, and so I think there's a, a parallel. Yeah. And so the, this, this quote is just sort of introducing sort of the heroic labor. And we've talked about this a little bit before, but the idea of engineering and industry being progress, right. Um, that, that you can the, honor the labor, honor the peasants, and then move them forward in this, into this new technological age. And that he was drawing on, you know, Aztec culture, sculptures, which is something he did very much in all of these U.S. compositions about bringing it forward into this technological age as a framing around um, that, you know, that the past could be fused with this futuristic approach. So, um, and again, like to me, the fusion, right, uh, of this futurism is, uh, is this an empowering composition? In, in I mean, it's quite, it's, it's 27 different murals, um, including two very large scale on the north and south sides of the room. And this is a detail of that. Um, but the question is, if you're looking at it from a Taylorist standpoint, the assembly line standpoint, what does this mean for the worker? And I think th these people further up, I'm trying to remember, there's something, their skin is green because they're being exposed to some sort of toxic poison. <laughs> you know, that's why they have a green tinge to them. And a lot of them, a lot of these individuals actually are, care are, are in protective gear in these sort of gas mask um, framework. So I'm, I'm gonna go through a couple more and then we'll pause. Mm -hmm. So, the River Rouge plant was almost a city unto itself. And it was a center of 
really modernizing the assembly line. So I was interested in looking back to like what that actually meant at the time because of Fordism, right? We all know it's the, the Fordist age, right? You, you pay people a good wage and then they can buy your cars and buy a house and, you know, live a comfortable life and work. Everybody's happy. Right. Um, but the reality was that when they first started the assembly line, um, the workers found that the work was really boring, and, and that people didn't want to do this work and that the assembly lines, uh, it was drudgery. And then they would speed up the lines and it, it was dangerous and the, the things would fall apart. But then once they got them to $5 a day and profit sharing, well, then people were willing to sacrifice their autonomy as workers for the money right for the for the payout for the financial payout and and it was framed as you know ford being so benevolent right that he would want wants to share the wealth and have lots of contented workers and so that's sort of my a bit of my question i would I maybe go back here just um what you guys think of from like a worker organizing standpoint of like what does that imply about the workers and about the work the nature of the work itself well, first of all, this painting is very beautifully done. It's very detailed. It obviously reflects what society is like across cultures. It's uh, whether you're in China or in Latin America or in Europe, or you know, this is definitely a reflection of how workers are. They are the backbone to our society. It, it is what creates what or what we have, but um, at the exploitation of the hands of power. And so, I I just want to say that there is um. This, 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 um, the workforce and the power that we have as workers, it's just, I think we undermine ourselves as, as like bees or ants that how much power we hold when I see depictions of workers like this. It's just so much that we can do if we really did, um, have the, if we organized in a way that was, a, that is able to defeat those that exploit us, uh, that's just what my comment earlier. That was just I was going to say that my commentary to this painting. I think to your question, um, Alison, um, like what what I see here is a collective process, but not a social process. You know, um, because uh, you know every worker is under task. You know, and they're kind of yes, they're present in the room, but they're focused on the task. You know, and and so they're in a way they're they're just in addition to the machine. Uh, for the machine to keep working, uh, the, the, and, and you said you know that they, they, they sacrifice their, um, in a sense, I see it as their humanity uh, in order to participate in in the option given, you know, because it's either do that or go and get another crappy job at the time, and I think that by and large that is still the thought that dominates us here, you know, that uh, on the left, um, that you know, the, the fight for just uh, wages. You know, wages is 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 the end goal. Increase the minimum wage, and but that 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 is not going to fix uh, the systemic thing that you know that we have to challenge. Um, and and so, um, yeah, as a Marxist, I mean, I I don't see a, a solution other than, you know, uh, obviously I, I, there's much to think about because it's not just about taking the means of production. It's like what kind of society alternatives in the productive process can be brought, you know, what technologies can actually be kept and in, in, in if they should be kept, you know, it's not just about taking over the means of production. Um, and, and so 
because I, you know, personally, I want a, a, a world not that I don't want that world. Hell no, I don't want to work in that factory. You know, I don't want to go, go to Amazon. That's what you get at Amazon. You know, right now, you know, and and even more because they're surveilled and more precisely and insidiously exploited. Um, and so I, I'm afraid of that world. It's not. It's not. It doesn't look like life to me. Yeah, I mean, I. I will say that Diego Rivera is doing some interesting things here because I do think he's doing what he said he wanted to do with his art, which is he is showing what is, but he's also showing like you can see that individual guy's face on the right. And you there, it's not like um, there's an, there is an individualism that's somewhat shown in it. And he's also showing the dangers of the work with the people wearing the masks. Um, but he's, but he, I do believe in, in embedded with this is, a, is, is still that sense of possibility of what, what workers could collectively do if, um, if unleashed, you know, and, and Marx, Marxism does talk about power. The power of the working class is it's, it's its ability to alter the, its environment for itself, to fit for itself. Um, and I do think that Marx also talks about alienation and like, workers who are essentially forced to do the things, but can't, they can't make decisions about how they would do it. I think the question that comes to my mind is if, would these work, would workers, if they were given the choice, would they choose to do it this way? Because that's, to me, the thing about socialism is about people having choices and about even collective choices and deciding. The, the question is, would non-alienated labor choose to arrange themselves, produce things in this, in this sort of arrangement. And if they didn't, then this, this has no place in our future. If they did, I don't know. Cause then look at those people who have to like have green skin and socialists have answered this question. Like, Oh, we'll have robots do that part. Like that's how, you know, and, but again, we can see that there's no free lunch here. I, so I like this painting cause it does show me that Diego Rivera is being true to his art. Cause he's not trying to gussy it up. But I do think it raises as many questions as it almost, as it maybe tries to answer. Um, the last thing is I'm thinking is we I, I've always thought about cyborg as just human cyborg, a one human being increasingly mapped onto a machine. But I feel like this vision of of ourselves as a society is almost a human social cyborg, where humans become more enmeshed with machinery um, as the process of production. And I'm not sure that's a good thing either. Um, so I don't know. Just another thought. Well, in the future, everyone's going to be a soft robot. <laughs> they're going to sit on their sofa and run the workers, right? And they're going to give you AR tablet that say, push this button, right, for this week. Next week, you're up in the, you know, the gas chamber. <laughs> you push that button. Actually, don't even, you know, they're, they're going to save all that money because they won't need the gas masks for the robots, right? Um, but then I guess part of me is like, these are cars, right? And so it's about like, and cheap cars, right? That's the idea is that everybody gets a cheap car. And so the, and the idea of this, you know, the reason it's so gargantuan is because it's feeding this giant system, right? That's supposed to keep growing so that it remains profitable. And so to me, that's the implications of like consumer durable goods and the environment and, you know, what are we making? And, you know, in some ways you could say like, 
you know, maybe cars are better than the people in, you know, China who are making plastic, like holiday decorations or something that are like meaningless, that maybe a car has more meaning, like utility, but um, the scale, right? The massive scale. And maybe, you know, compared to, you know, they always talk about the enclosures, right? The cottager industry, like where you actually had control over multiple aspects of the process. And then once people were ended up in the factories, that was all gone. Like they lost that, that leverage. I don't know. I mean, the thing is, you know, it's a diverse group of workers that's pointed out, you know, that's part of, you know, the, the, the narrative, but, um, I guess who is being uplifted here? Is it Ford for having such a wonderful factory or is it the workers? And I don't know, like maybe it's unclear. I think Diego's, Diego Rivera is clear that it's the workers. It's the, it's the power of the working class here, but uh, there still is, yeah, <laughs> but there still is what is this, is this what we, is this what workers would want for our future? If we, if we had cho real true choices about, how we lived our lives. Is this what we would choose for ourselves? Um, and I think there's a, there's a, in the same way that the vaccine is being raised up in the, in the previous panel, this factory is being raised up. And again, we have to counterpose this factory model as if, well, once we get control of the, once workers got control of the factory, it's all good. Then this process now becomes a clean process versus, and I don't just mean environmentally clean, but almost like enrich it becomes an enriching process instead of a degrading one and i don't know if that's true i actually i don't know if workers who would have would make who would be working in such a situation would be like well i didn't like doing this under capitalism and i'm not sure i like doing this under socialism like um even if i would would we vote to put people in this sort of situation and would workers say yeah this is what i want to be doing and i, I have a question about that well, it's interesting because that article, which is actually from the Ford Ford company, was like they didn't want to do it until we paid them five dollars an right. hour profit sharing. Right. They didn't really want to do it. That kind of answers the question. That sort of answers the question. Sorry, we have a neighbor who has a really loud dog. Uh, so, I mean, okay. So assembly line. Okay. Um, it sounds like a bloodhound. It's some kind of hound. It's a big hound. It comes about every night and it walks around and howls. So, um, well, this is, this is just going back to like means of production again, right? Cause that's the factory. That's a certain kind of factory, a car factory, but now literally we are, they're talking about these biotechnologies turning our bodies into the factories. Um, so I, I don't know if there are people who are just listening versus watching on, on YouTube, but, um, this is from an article from genetic engineering and biotechnology news, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the, it's, it's fairly recent. Um, the, the title of the article is enabling the body to manufacture its own medicine. And, and the, the, the sentence that I pulled out is in other words, MRNA is a disease eradicating platform that transforms each person's body into its own therapeutic or vaccine factory. So I, you know, to me, that's the thing I can't quite get a handle on the left, not understanding they're literally calling your body a factory. <laughs> like, like once you go to that point, how are we not applying those principles of means of production to what is coming through the biotechnology space? I, I, I feel like it's the same thing as what we just looked at, which is, I think I like, for me, you're right. Like 
the the more that we've gone deeper down this rabbit hole that capitalism has taken us down, the more it's caused me to be to fear what the world we're being driven into. And it's caused me to relook at that old picture of the factory of humans taking, and it's caused me to question, wait, if I, if I reject this notion of my body becoming a factory, well then do I accept that we, that workers, we would want to work in a factory. And like you said, when they were presented with that work, it was boring as shit. It was, it was dulling. I think that work's going to be dulling under any circumstance. I don't think you can make that interesting under any, so would workers, would workers say, yeah, let's do that. And I don't, I kind of think, I don't, would, I don't think they would, I would want to do it. I would want to do something that's enriching. And I can't imagine anybody who, who doesn't want to be enriched to say, let's, let me go back into that factory doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. So yeah, I think, I think socialists have fallen for this, for the same reason that we looked back on that and we're like, yeah, if we could just get control of this thing, then it'll be all good. And it's not, it's not something we're, I don't think those, we're not allowed to get control of it. This, these technologies are being produced as our prison, not as, not as an option for rep for liberation. Um, and it, Cortez keeps coming back over and over again in my mind. Yeah. I'll never see Cortez the same way. <laughs> <laughs> I no longer see him as a white colonizer. I see him as a technological colonizer. <laughs> and that, that article is 2016, by the way. I can see the date. It's very tiny. But Thank yeah. you. That's how they in view what, what they're trying to do. Like that yep. really is their vision of how they hope this thing operates when it gets up and running. And that's what we're doing. Andy. Don't I mean, you see? truly <laughs> revolutionary. No, but that's, I mean, these spike proteins that are being expressed on the surface of our cells are the vaccine products and our cells are the factory for these spike proteins that are then we have antibodies. So, I mean, this is what's happening. It's not, this is, this is now. Yeah. Okay. New means of production, pay for success and bioreactors. <laughs> so this might be a bit of a stretch, but, um, I think it's interesting, so just bear with me. Because um, I also think that Rivera was probably involved in a lot of sort of spiritual and psychedelic practices. So who knows what kind of time traveling he may have been doing. Um, so on the, the top of these two major panels, the North and South Walls, uh, they have figures um, that represent the different races of people in color. So they're these large sort of blocky abstracted figures. And above each or below each figure is a narrow panel panel that actually embodies a certain mineral element. And, and on, so there's the red people, right? And the, the red people are over iron and that's what these really fractal sort of crystals are underneath. And then, and then you have the, the black people and the black people are over coal. And then on the, the there, there's white and yellow on the other wall. I'll have an image of that later, but you can see the um, volcano and these hands that are coming out of the volcano holding the black rocks, right? The black rock, black stone um, in the hands. And, and then underneath they're underlaid. It's sort of like the people are rising out of these mineral beds. And so to me, especially the iron and these, um, I think dodecahedrons, I don't know, and people who are better with math might know better, but they, 
it's it relates to his cubist practice but to me that feels like a nano crystal technology like presaging what is coming within these bioreactor spaces and that people are essentially of these minerals like they literally are holding them in their hands so there's a very direct connection between um the, the human body and these minerals that are the minerals all of which are used in production of cars specifically so that the iron um uh the coal there's limestone and i can't remember the the other one on the other side but there there he specifically chose these materials that are were used in the factories so um for me like they're literally looking at like crystalline nanotechnology and dna crystals okay so this is this is this is the white figure and and literally you can see at the base these crystalline structures that are underlaid by the the limestone and you have more hands but they say in these in this image the hands are like in fists and they're angry they're not just holding the rocks they're angry um but the idea that literally living tissues are being used to create these bio hybrid materials and nanotechnological materials um there are two articles here one is called 3d dna crystals and nanotechnology um and the date on that is 2016. And here's one called The Fascinating World of Functional Hybrid and Biohybrid Materials, which is July of 2018. So literally they are, I think what Rivera is talking about is speaks to the idea of a biohybrid, right? Like that living tissues are of minerals, vice versa. There's this sort of non, it isn't discrete that there is a blending of that and that that is part of the industrial fabrication process. Um, DARPA, you know, we've talked about DARPA has come up a number of times. Uh, this is from the DARPA website where they're talking about living foundries, uh, that the Department of Defense wants to have certain high value molecules, and they're looking into creating synthetic biomanufacturing. Um, so they're looking literally at creating, growing these bio nano materials within living systems, which I think mostly they sort of frame as like, oh, we're gonna use it in yeast or these like very basic, like, you know, single cellular organisms, but there's nothing that says that it, they're not planning on using it in more broadly. Um, so I'll just read this last paragraph. It says the ongoing living foundries, 1000 molecules component seeks to further refine this initial capability to decrease the cost improve the scalability and expand the complexity of engineered systems for biomanufacturing. Efforts are focused on using automation, novel genome editing tools and machine learning technologies to alleviate the challenges of prototyping. As proof of concept, DARPA aims to produce 1000 molecules and material precursors spanning a wide range of defense relevant applications, including industrial chemicals, pharmaceuticals, coatings and adhesives that can be customized to continue evolving DOD needs while ensuring continued leadership of the U.S. in the rapidly evolving field of synthetic biology. So part of what like like this just goes back to the mRNA is literally what they're talking about is using our bodies as factories, creating nanomaterials, various sorts of biohybrid materials within living systems, whether those are living tissues of plants or microbes or potentially people. Um, but the factory model, and, and as Orozco had referenced early on, it, it being embedded in the defense industry, 
to me is really important because what was happening in the 1930s, the early 1930s is the early advent of electron microscopy and the, the, the role of the Rockefeller family, particularly and Rockefeller medicine in molecular biology. And to me, that approach of looking at life from a molecular standpoint, from a standpoint in which it is simply an, a material that can be engineered, which is, you know, a hop, skip and a jump to it can be fabricated in a factory. It's, there is nothing spiritually connected to a living system it is simply just a collection of molecules that can be used in a certain way. Oh, okay. So can I, I'm going to see if I can play this, if this is loud enough to play. It's a short clip that I did about Ginkgo Bioworks. Um, it's about three minutes, I think. Ginkgo Bioworks, it's one of the largest synthetic biology companies now. They have these series of literally like biological factories. They're called Bioworks or, or foundries. They're all based in Cambridge, um, you know, single cell biology in a massively parallel fashion. At the end of every workday, they might be behaving slightly differently than they did at the beginning of the workday. How we think about the future of investing, multiplicative effects of all of these different like exponential cost curves uh, colliding in such a way that you get totally freakish and alien output. Ginkgo Bioworks is building a horizontal platform to program cells for every type of application, from pharma and biotech to food and agriculture, and even consumer products. Right, so, so if you take a bite out of that impossible Whopper or a Burger King, it's going to bleed hemoglobin, which is what makes blood red, which you don't really find at high levels in plants, into the burger. So where does it come from? Well, they took brewer's yeast, like the yeast you used to make beer, and they program it like you'd program a computer. That platform really has two parts. Their code base of cells, enzymes, and genetic programs that they use to jumpstart new projects and Ginkgo's automated foundries. Foundries and this concept of programming biology is foreign to uh, almost everybody. We jointly developed the concept of a cell program. And they'll continue to develop that using code base from our collection. That code base is a long-term competitive advantage for Ginkgo Bioworks with over 440 million proprietary gene sequences acquired so far. Ginkgo will organize the world's biological code and make it useful. And then bring a lot of concepts in, robotics, liquid handling instruments, wide array of sophisticated machinery and instrumentation that we use to amplify and multiply what our scientists are able to do in our foundry. So, so Ginkgo's business is, you know, we program cells project with Moderna last March. Right? We're like an AWS for programming biology. You know, McKinsey projects two to four trillion dollars uh, for cell applications. So Ginkgo Bioworks makes money in two ways. When the robots do the actual work, and then through a revenue sharing model, when you invest in Ginkgo, you're also investing in the clients they take on. It's zooming into Moderna. So, yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm curious what you guys think, because I've had that clip for a while, but I think if we, like, if Rivera were commissioned today, it would totally be like Ginkgo Bioworks saying, like, Rivera, like, look at our factory. <laughs> look at our robot workers. Well, the first thing I would say is if we go back to, can we go back to the uh, picture with the hands and the crystals? Yeah. Um, is well, I, and again, I'm, I'm looking at this through the lens of contemporary Marxism that I was brought up in, which basically, okay, I, I, I can see how Rivera is fusing humans with machines and saying in the, 
in the proper structure, in the proper kind of society, that can have a liberatory effect, that fusion, that, si that social cyborg that is being created by capitalism. And similarly, he's kind of saying that there's these things inside the earth, these, these powers, these almost like that, these hands are like the Prometheus. These hands are, take, are, 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 are able to find these magical, well, these crystals that can be turned into magical things if we can put those things, and it's humans that are able to un unlock that. Um, they're the they're the sort of Promethean gods now who can who can turn these different four different materials of the earth into these wonderful machines. Okay, in that case, it's maybe it's not cars, maybe it's something else. Um, but but at the end of the day, we we still again have to remember all this stuff gets turned into World War World War II tank production. And when I look at this ginkgo thing, it just reminds me of the 2018 Department of Defense National Defense Strategy, which basically was saying that the future for fighting China is we, we have to understand that biotech and big data analytics and things like that are going to be the way, those are the developments we're going to have to lead on the United States if we're going to be able to compete with China. So I understand that all these things are being put out again as something that could have domestic use. But all of these things, I keep seeing them ultimately only through the lens of war and of, of, of war making. And that was really put through with that one, that one part you read from DARPA, which is like they, are, they understand what this stuff is about. And so they go, look, all this stuff is basically, it's, it, even the vaccine right now, which is spike proteins on your surface, all those technologies are ultimately so the, so the U.S. who controls one can make war with somebody else who's also trying to do the same thing. And there's a lot of money that 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 other bit about Kiko Bioworks. It was like, look how much money they can make. They can make while the robots do the work and from all of these licensing of essentially life, like genetic material. Yeah. I mean, I just can't escape the whole link between colony. You you brought this up in a previous episode, um, you know, Alison, about imperializing our very small parts, you know, uh, the molecules, our, our cells. Uh, I also remember reading something uh, from Microsoft where they're working on basically using our um, body energy, right? Like the energy that we produce to for data storage, basically. Um, and so because, you know, apparently data requires a lot of energy to be stored, uh, this processing, uh, you know, rooms uh, increasingly, you know, as they collect massive masses, they're going to need a more efficient way of storing stuff. And, and so obviously to someone that doesn't have the context, it sounds so crazy, but there is, you know, there is a uh, financial uh, application here, obviously capitalism, there is a monetization of this stuff. This stuff is not just to to make our lives better as, as again that's the way it's sold all these technologies uh you know they're, they're sold as potentially for the betterment of, of humans and that's what we thought of the internet right and you know it was going to democratize our society and open channels of challenging the status quo and we're seeing that is the opposite <laughs> it's actually uh our sense of the world is a lot narrower i think for a lot of people who experience the world through through you know media and through devices, um, our sense of ourselves is also being lost, and, and so again brings me back to that question of free will, you know, and and can we um, 
can we exercise free will when we are so polluted, you know, and so immersed into part of the machinery? Can we lift our head up? Can enough of us lift our head up and say, is this worth it? You know, and, and that's the, the, the question that I have as a Marxist, right, who, who sees power in the, in the you know, in, in the hands of the masses, you know, the people that produce, but uh, increasingly, I don't know, you know, I, I was very optimistic, um, but it's hard when um, these technologies are just amusing and, and, and actually kind of exciting for people, you know, and, and, and they're welcome as a tool of liberation. You know, I, I have a friend who's constantly uh, calling me a caveman, insulting me because he works in biotech, oh, you know, wow. And, you know, and he, and I'm sorry, like, I love you if you're listening, <laughs> but, you know, and I use this, it's kind of an insult, honestly, and I, and I call button pushers. You know, a button pusher does not know what the masters know. They don't, like, just like that, that military person that you guys interviewed here, the button pushers don't have a sense of the strategic nature of, you know, the technologies that are being pushed. You know, so, so in, in, in obviously, you know, they also, the, the, I think, I don't know if I'm correct, but something along the lines of 30 to 40% of our uh, economy is uh, related to national security, quote unquote, um, you know, the national security industry, you know. So, again, in order to change this stuff, right, you, you, you have to have an alternative to people's livelihoods, you know, uh, shaming and, 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 uh, antagonizing is not going to work. You know, you have to have alternatives and solutions because, again, as a materialist, mm -hmm. uh, you know, fundamentally we want to survive. You know, and our, our very survival, you know, attached to this machine, you know, I don't think people can see beyond, you know, being attached to this machine. And so then we are just mesmerized. And, 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 and I do think, at least people that I talk to, this stuff is too hard to process, too hard to understand the implications. And I'm not saying they're idiots. It's just hard, you know, to be able to lift your head up and say no, you know, and especially when it comes at a great cost. And, and in time is of the essence, you know, these technologies are advancing exponentially in, um, in ways that we can't even uh, wrap our heads around, you know, you know, this is just opening more questions to me, <laughs> you know, all this, because there is more, I thought, okay, I was thinking of, you know, the insidiousness of developing us as batteries, basically look at the matrix, that movie, right? <laughs> uh, and, and then I'm finding out there is way more technologies that I'm not even aware of, you know, uh, coming live into our lives. And, you know, when we talk about AI, we, we don't even have a sense of how insidious AI is in our lives. And it has been. It's been around. And, and so, yes, it is a race against time. But I guess the question I have is like, I mean, do people, do some people just want to stay connected to the matrix, the machine, rather than fight the machine? And I don't know. That's just like a philosophical question that I have and that will need to be answered. You know, I, I'm going to do my battle because I, I don't want this life. I don't want to be mine. I don't want to be the resource, you know, to feed this machinery, to produce profits so a few can live like kings or beyond kings, you know, like extraterrestrial beings with superpowers. Um, 
And so that, that's just the, sh the stuff that this evokes, you know, all these technologies, uh, imperialism of the body, of our cells, of our molecules, of our minds, of our consciousness, of our spirit. And, and, and so, it, again, and I, I, I don't know, like, I don't know, you know, that's why I do this. So maybe someone will have some different answer, different questions, you know, because I don't, I have more questions now. Um, I my comment, I guess, is just short. Um, it, it, to Kenny saying that, like, I think the battery image of the Matrix, the films. I think there are imageries and there are science fiction dystopian novels today. There's dystopian films today being created today, where we are seeing that we are ourselves a resource that's being commodified, that is being exploited, that is being used, that is being, you know, like this depiction here where. Uh, the different races that representing different elements of nature. And it's weird, no, I don't want to almost say it, but could AI life potentially turn on us and be we be used? I mean, is that something that we can it's hard for me to fathom. And but I feel as if with the new with the recent um discussions around aliens or extraterrestrial beings. It's almost as if it's opened up my mind to be able to have those discussions that we could potentially be used as um, as 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 I remember as Isaac Asimov's uh, short collection of stories of science fiction where robots turn on humans and humans are now being used by robots and uh, we are I mean we ourselves I mean we are resource ourselves like this is as this, this uh, mural is being depicted. I have a lot of concerns about the alternative energy movement, <laughs> increasingly. <laughs> yeah. are, we the, are we the new renewable energy? <laughs> are humans it? <laughs> We've been trying to figure it out for so long, it's finally come. <laughs> well, there's all this conversation now about decentralized grids and the blockchain and, you know, and they all talk about solar panels, but I'm like, you think, it's like a hop, skip, and a jump from the solar panel to the smart shirt. You know, we already had that conversation a bit ago, you know? Um. Just one last thought. Uh, and again, in all this, I see this continuous, like, push for something new, something better, something, you know, the, the eternal um, growth, right, of, uh, that capitalism basically summons into the world, you know, in, in the same question applies to technology like do we need more of this you know why <laughs> why do we need more of this because at least the question on the left again is generally um how do we harness new technology so that's how the narrative has been driven to right even on climate change how do we harness new technologies it's not about stopping production right like the incessant production that we have it's just how do we better adapt you know and, and then um you know, uh, again, it's, it's not a question of like, that's enough. Like, you know, stop. You know, there is plenty for everyone. Right. Well, I mean, I think, again, the, the, the answer that I've, socialists have always made is that the cap, the set, the organize, organizing the workers as a collective and socializing production, which looks like that Diego Rivera painting that we saw five things back has essentially created the basis for producing 
enough so that people can have the things they need to survive and 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 to do it in a short enough time so that people can actually rule collectively together like you know have a, an actual democracy as opposed to having to work so hard just to kind of stay alive kind of thing that's been the the statement but i got like you kenny more questions for me come out of these sorts of particularly as as things progress in our current society as the means of production increasingly look like the way Orozco has depicted them, then, um, then I, then the question becomes like, it can, can these swords be turned into plowshares? Because that, because all of these things really are swords. They're not, they're made to, for death. They're made for killing. They're made for competition over resources. I mean, as people are, as those four plants are going forward, the U.S. is already laying pl plans for how they're going to control oil in the Pacific and how they're going to control oil in Europe and the Middle East. So that all this is happening, like so, none of this. So all these, all this produ production was. Are we? Are we? Are we immediately because of capitalism exists? Are we all then strapped to our machines forever at the because of the things of productivity? If that's the case, I don't know, man. I just don't know. So it just raises a bunch of questions about what revolution, because again, the center of revolution and socialism has been getting control of the means of production. And if I, I have a question, if it's going to be that simple, is it, we have to destroy the means of production and then reform what we want. So I just don't know, but that was, a, that's a central part of the way Marxists look at it. And if the means of production are, if those means of production are all, constructed around one aim which is killing and competition can you really turn those things into life things can they just be tilted can they use be used for a different purpose if their purpose was only one i have a big question about that well one of the things i just want to add in is someone who's like not a long-standing leftist is just that more of an indigenous worldview resonates with me because it's the larger complex relationships of humans within the other living systems. And so if you're planning an economy, is it essentially about around human need, right? And that, and, and that for me, the frame of what is it to be a good relative, not beyond humanity um, in that balanced place and then would you want to plan all of that? And then would that make you God, you know, or some sort of techno God to plan, decide to plan the whole universe? You know, that's the man control of the universe, I guess. That's kind of maybe what he was saying. Um, so anyway, that's kind of what I, one of the things that I think about. Just because some of these things sound super outlandish, like within the context, I was looking at crystals and like piezoelectric because I have to say, you know, about three years ago, I met Roz Ben and um, he does a lot of work around geomancy and crystals and sort of doing this artistic interpretation and this sort of um, like decolonizing work. And I was, you know, my first thing is like, oh, 
crystals, you know, like, I, I don't know, wasn't a crystal person really like now I have like my little crystal necklace here somewhere. But like, I was like, and then I got to thinking about how much of technology is really crystalline based. I mean, literally it is crystals, it's refined in certain ways, but it really is about crystals. And so I was looking at some of the history, because I do like to sort of look back and see where things came from. So in this sort of 1920 to 1940 timeframe, which is when these murals were being produced, like what was happening with crystalline technology, you know, and among those included like work on materials testing with ultrasonic waves, because I think a lot of what's coming, what we're experiencing now has to do with frequency and like crystal radios. And during the, following the World War One, it says, it talks about classic piezoelectric applications now we're hearing about human piezoelectric energy harvest, um, but some of those applications included things like microphones, accelerometers, transducers, I don't know, bender element actuators, phonographs, phonograph pickups, and signal filters. And so these things were already in the works in World War I and then sort of further developing, although that they had limited commercial production. But the idea of using crystalline technologies within the context that might seem kind of far-fetched but they actually, it was within the technological framework of that era. So I just wanted to make that point. And this is an image that I've used in some other um, slide decks, but I kind of imagine like the post post Fordism, which is where life itself becomes the car on the assembly line. And then instead of the workers, they're all replaced by robots. And that we're all being systems engineered on the, Kenny, this speaks to your free will conversation. Like, do we have free will or are we just on somebody else's assembly line and where the hell is it going, right? Um, can we be the car that gets off the assembly line before the end? Maybe or maybe not. But like, to me, that encapsulates what it is when the means of production become our own bodies and our own social relations. Cause it's not just our physical within the context of pay for success, which is what we're talking about too, is the enclosures also happen to get woven into all of our social relationships to one another and within our communities. Yeah. And I think there's something important to know about crystals. Um, like this was a big part of my research actually was turning um, in order to get the, the, in order to uh, see what proteins look like at a molecular level, we had to make crystals out of the proteins. And so what was that? So on, on the surface of it, uh, I have a new ring, right? And I've got like, you know, I'm married now and it's got a sapphire on it and it's beautiful. And we, and we you can look at that blue sapphire and be like, oh, that's so beautiful. I mean, and, and that is the reason that some of the people like it. But what's important about it for science is our two things are the order, it's ordered and repetitive. Um, and what it allows you to do is whatever signal is sent, then each, each, each molecule or each thing inside that order will send out the same signal at the same time. Like they'll all be a chorus. Um, so it, this allows you to amplify a signal. And that's really what's the inner part of what makes it so useful for capitalism is not its beauty, it's not its outward beauty, but the fact that everything's in order and it repeats itself in one dimension, two dimensions, and the three dimensions, over and over and over again. And the, the more order there is in a crystal, the more it is just a repetition of the same thing over and over and over and over again, like a factory plant, mm -hmm. then the, the more useful that crystal is for the capitalist. Because it whatever, whatever signal you send into that thing and whatever transformation takes place within that crystal, it will be the same transformation. It will send that signal out 
in a single sound amplified because everything was in the same structure in the same order. So everything gets seen. And that's exactly what I was doing. I was hitting these crystals with x-rays um, in order to see the scattering of those, of those x-rays by each of those protein molecules. So un from that, I could unpack what it looked like and what that what the, those proteins looked like at the carbon, for where their carbon atoms were, nitrogen atoms, oxygen atoms. So again, I don't know, man. These are weird things. Yes. No, I didn't know that that was your area of expertise. That's pretty cool. X-ray crystallography. It, it almost sounds like the way uh, consensus is manufactured, you know, and in, in, in having people repeat the same thing over and over, you know, by being exposed to traumatic stuff. Yeah. And, and the reality is, is mu not much of what is life that we consider life is crystalline, like is not order, is not the same thing over and over again. Of course, crystals exist in nature. They come out of, but most of what we understand of life doesn't have those features to it. It's it's it it it's unpredictable, um, and it's um, it it's it's distinctive in its difference, not in not in its commonality. Um, and so, we think about the standardization even in education, like the to scale these things globally for the process. They have to be standardized. There right. has to be the repetition, the replication. And, and there is a way that there's a way that culture is, we are being, I feel like when I think about what a crystal is, there is a way that society feels like we are being turned into a human social factory, a human social crystal. So that we are all the same. We all say the same thing. We all think the same thing. And we are all can be harmonized to a particular order that can produce an outcome. Mm. But even crystals have imperfections, no? Like there are diamonds and all kinds of nice, beautiful rocks that aren't necessarily used in today because they're not a standard, right? A beauty. Right. Okay. So, but yes. The real plants get thrown to the side or called. Uh, okay, so this is interesting. So, um, so I found this, this, this gets a little bit on the esoteric side, but I found it really interesting. So I, in one of the images and I'll show it later, there was um, like a compass point in this mural. And I go, well, that really looks Masonic. Like, I'm just kind of curious, is that like a Masonic symbol? And then I, I found out this whole article that said, well, um, Rivera was wasn't actually a Mason, but his father was like the 33rd plus degree Mason. And like all his, the person who like delivered him as a, you know, in you know birthed him you know was there at the delivery of him was a mason and all the people he hung out with in california were mason so i was like oh well that's interesting and then i found out that he was one of the founding um founders of the rosicrucian order in mexico city this lodge uh this quetzalcoatl um lodge in 1926 so this is before he comes to the united states but pretty early on in his career, at least in Mexico in the mural movement, because that started in 1922. So within four years, he is a founding member of this lodge and created a painting of uh, Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent, um, as sort of the emblem of this, this lodge. Mm. So, so what are the Rosicrucians? So essentially, it's sort of this ancient mystery school, like this mystical, and this is where I find it interesting, like how much of Rivera, the image that we're told of Rivera is actually the full breadth of what he was. Because if the left aspect is very materialist, it seems like increasingly a lot of him, 
his work was metaphysical, <laughs> like was beyond a materialist framing um, and that he was blending these two things. Um, and so, so this order goes back to ostensibly ancient Egypt. It was through the middle ages. And then clearly like he established this in Mexico city in the twenties. Um, there's lots of, there's actually quite a Rosicrucian presence like in Quakertown, Pennsylvania, they have this whole, um, temple thing up there, but there's actually a major Egyptian museum in San Jose, actually, of the Rosicrucians, like it's a central area. Um, and so after he was trying to come back into the Communist Party, like he had to explain himself, which I guess makes sense if you if you're looking at things from a materialist end, they're like, Rivera, what the what the heck were you doing for 25 years with these Rosicrucians anyway? So when he wanted to come back in, um, it's not Christian per se, it literally is this sort of ancient mystery school and it's connected in some ways to alchemy and symbolism. And so I think to me, it's especially given that his, I mean, he wasn't just incidentally a member, like he was a founding member. He created the imagery for um, this lodge in Mexico city, which is you know a major lodge there. Um, the idea that you would contain knowledge in symbolism or like hidden symbols within the imagery. So I know sometimes maybe some of the stuff I'm going to talk about in the images in Detroit might seem a bit of a stretch, but I think that we probably need to understand that he was very familiar with the idea of embedding symbol, symbolic language and messaging in his images because his, his paintings are very detailed. I mean, Orozco is, is a bit more, um, like fluid in, 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 in less detailed, but Rivera is very, very detailed in terms of like, yeah. here are the five things on this table, <laughs> you know, and then you get to figure out. So it's quite like a puzzle in there. So like he, to know that he was connected with this particular order that was trained in symbolic, in symbolism, symbolic language, which is not unlike information technology systems, really. Um, you just have to know how to decode it. Um, but central to this mystical order was the idea of consciousness. And, and that consciousness is kind of, to me, on the polar opposite end of molecular biology. <laughs> like an engineered mindset that you can take molecules and put them together and program matter is very different than a mystical alchem alchemical consciousness scenario. So to me, that's very interesting, these two backgrounds. Um, and this is just, again, from this history of uh, the Rosicrucianism, but the idea of alchemy, there's a global network of people who are very interested in these other sorts of alternative science investigations. They go back to Paracelsus, Bacon. I mean, these are major players in sort of medieval and early modern history that he is affiliated with. So I think it's nothing that we should just like dismiss out of hand. And someone shared, this was on Twitter today, but like he, this idea of an Athenor, which I'd never heard of, but was alchemical furnace. And like this image is like all the little black stones going to feed the alchemical furnace. And so I started me like thinking like alchemy, like some of it is spiritual alchemy and the alchemy of the soul, but could nanotechnology, like could this idea of, biotech or molecular biology that's evolving into this nanobiotech space be today's equivalent of an alchem alchemical process and then what is the role of the uber capitalist you know hedge fund investor class of blackrock and blackstone in running this transformational furnace which is not unlike the graphene furnace and the furnaces in the ford plant 
Um, and so when later he goes and he does his first uh, commissions in the Bay Area, this is Rivera in the Bay Area. Um, but this is a major museum in San Jose, the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum. Like it's not, I mean, I, don't, I mean, not the Google, but like many people think that this is a very esteemed, it's not a flaky, just side, you know, side of the road attraction. It dates to 1926. So, you know, it's an hour outside of San Francisco. And the idea that he has founded this Rosicrucian Lodge in Mexico City, and then he suddenly gets transported up and is working with all these Masons in San Francisco. There's no way that I think that he doesn't know about the individuals who are involved in this circle. Um, even though an hour by car today is probably a little bit longer in the late 20s, like it's not so far if you're coming from Mexico. And then I additionally layering onto this that uh, San Jose is the county seat of Santa Clara County, which is where all of the pay for success finance pilots are happening and where the first um, where the legislation that was the first corporate personhood tied in with the railroad system happened in the 1880s. So there's these layers of history overlaid on top of Santa Clara County and San Jose and, and this with this Rosicrucian. So the, within these grander, like sort of metaphysical worlds, there's the Gnosticism, this idea of having gnosis and light and spiritual awakening and looking at Rosicrucians as being Gnostics. Um, the Gnostic gospels is this idea of like the world of oneness and that there is this Sophia that essentially wanted to like give birth outside of the process and, and created this material reality that was sort of an abomination that became the demiurge. And so I think that there is this tension between spirituality and materialism that in many respects, Diego Rivera's work in Detroit in the Detroit murals is weighing these two parts, the, the, the metaphysical, the material, the consciousness, the machine. Um, and it's this interesting intersection. And so, you know, I was looking like, were the Rosicrucian Gnostics? And they're like, well, they kind of pretty much overlapped. The Rosicrucians didn't think the material world was so terrible as the Gnostics. The Gnostics thought the material world is terrible. We just got to get out of here as soon as possible. Um, but the myth of Sophia was that the fall wasn't Adam and Eve, but was what I was saying. She was an eon, a divine entity descended from God. And they were like angels and that she was the, the, the child of God and she was within this pleroma, the Greek for fullness, the heaven. Like, so everything in before the fall was all together and happy in the pleroma. And Sophia wanted to have a child, but she conceived without a male partner. So it's a non-traditional conception process. And that this child became the demiurge, which was this misshapen in creature and that she cast it out of the pleroma out of heaven and that that became the material world and that it was a, like not a good world but within that that there were sparks of the divine in in the beingness of the world itself and that that was the fall and so and that eventually there was some reconciliation but this idea of Sophia the goddess, the original fall, the casting out of the demiurge. And I think this is important because the Sophionic myth and the Gnostic gospels actually relates back to Ethiopia and what Cardano and, and Hanson Robotics are doing, blockchaining all the people in Ethiopia. Like, I think that there is actually a Gnostic uh, mystical connection to these early stories of how the material world came to be. So part of the reason I bring this in is when I first looked at the vaccination 
caption picture that someone had posted. This is a very small panel underneath. So if you can imagine the structure of this room has, um, it's tripartite. There's the upper panels and then there's a, a narrow layer, um, uh, which is where the, the, the carbon and the iron crystals were, this is that equivalent narrow layer. And then there's sort of the, the major uh, sections with the, the very massive murals. So this is one of these small detailed layers. And when I first saw the vaccination picture, I said, what is that? <laughs> like I kind of put it out on Twitter and I go, what is that thing under the vaccine? And it wasn't this clear. I didn't have a good enough detail of it at that point. And I'm like, and then someone said, it's the Demiurge. <laughs> and I go, what's the Demiurge, right? Like, what is this Demiurge? Because I think in some respects, like we're moving into what is life? What is creation? What is man? What is machine? What is engineering? What are minerals? What is this hybrid? And, and within Rivera's life too, and I, I will touch on this in a bit, but like um, Frida Kahlo, because of her health, consequences like had a number of miscarriages and so there's this element of reproduction process both in their personal lives and then writ large that I think has implications for synthetic biology and what it means to play God and create life. Um, now this is framed in the traditional analysis of this uh, the mural construct that this is a healthy embryo and that is surrounded by disease and that thank goodness for the vaccination process in modern medicine that we protect these embryos. Now, I will say to me, it looks like the colors that they use in the minerals and the cubist crystalline kind of structures are feeding that embryo and that there is no other human body attached to it. Like there's no woman, there's not a human process connected to that. So when I think about it possibly as a demiurgic figure, like this sort of thing that was cast out that might create the material world, especially when the material world is these minerals. Um, I mean, I think it's an interesting interpretation. Can I say for sure, like I said, they, they frame it as modern medicine, that this is just embryos in modern medicine. But um, within his backstory of the material and the metaphysical, to me, it seems more significant because it's almost like we're, we're fighting over life itself. I don't know if you guys, that's kind of a lot. I don't know if you have any response to any of those things. Who, who is the painter of this? Um, this is Rivera. This yeah. is, this is Rivera. This is yeah. interesting. This is right under the vaccine I've painting. Never, I've never seen this, 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 this. I don't, I don't automatically see it surrounded by disease all around. I mean, some of those things just look like what are normally just, the way that um, magnified biology looks, it doesn't, doesn't to me, uh, at least I'm imagining this when you say, when they're saying surrounded by disease, it's, it's, it's all those cellular things on the outside, correct? Yeah, the outside. Yeah. I mean, this is from their curators, like what they say about it. Right, so I think right, right. This is how they framed it. I mean, um, the thing that, the, the thing that comes back to me is, is the, is that because this is, um, now this mural, is it connected to the to the people with the hands and their crystals coming up? That's a different mural, isn't it? Uh, it's on the same wall. Okay, this, well, this is a, yeah. So if this is part of that same mural. It yeah. it it just it seems to come back and, and imply that the power that he's describing that's going to be harnessed um, by humans through 
in factories as they strip out the the, the energy and the resources of the earth the, that same power is actually being is is fr- is a power from which humans come like those crystals right there to me i imagine are not different than the ones that those human hands are holding up later that's one implication that comes to me um but i don't see disease on the outside i just see a, a hidden world that's being exposed through um through magnification and like that, that this is the biological world that we live in um i don't i don't know what that thing in the center is that's got these spikes coming off of it um that the that the that the that the developing fetus is is growing around um and so that that's what comes to mind for me at least But there's not a mom, really. There's not a, it seems like it's being nourished off of the minerals, not, I don't know. There's not, I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't. It, it, it gets more interesting. There's another, there's another piece. Let me see if, can I, okay, this is just a, a quote I pulled, but it was talking about the Gnostic gospels and the idea of um, matter and form being illusions or the shadows of spirit. Um, and that, that the eternal is sort of created through light and existing in mind. So again, um, mind being a unity and all beings and objects consisting of mind substance. So it's the idea of matter, like what is actually matter and what is mind. And I think to me, some of this comes back to the nanotechnology space is that when someone tells you like all, like this oak sofa that I'm sitting on isn't actually, is mostly empty space. (laughs) You know, it feels really hard. Like I, you know, I've like knocked my shin on it a couple times, but that it's really open these just molecules, right? And so if if we can't sense that with our current senses, but if you had ask access to sort of the microscopy, you could blow that apart and say like, no, at, at a molecular level, there's a lot more going on here that is not how you see it with your senses. Like that, and that who creates matter? Like is matter... And how is the matter built? And just to be clear, like this description of the world, which basically says there is only one substance, matter and form are merely illusions or shadows of spirit. That is the opposite of how Marxists construct um, that, that that matter and form are the preconditions from which ideas and that's uh, out of which ideas emerge. So um, right. this is more Hegelian, I guess, I guess that'd be described in, you know, so. That's just what it yeah, is. Yeah, so it's like the mystical, like Gnostic Rosicrucian model versus the Marxist model. So mm-hmm. that's that's to me what one of the things I think is kind of interesting. And so, um, again, I've, I've mentioned this a couple times, but I think he's weighing these two sides. One of which is examining, um, in partnership, because this is happening. Actually, the people who brought him from Mexico early on, even though I think his first commission was in San Francisco. Um, he had a show with the Museum of Modern Art. It was actually the second independent show that they hosted. And uh, Abby Aldrich Rockefeller was the individual that was sort of pa- was the patron that that enabled him to come to New York City. And while he was there, they toured him around uh, the Rockefeller Institute and all of their labs. And so he was literally had access to some of the highest technology at the time. And I think that's important. He's not just making this up or he's read it in a book. He had access to the power center of the people who were driving 
the version of medicine that was focused on a technologically, highly advanced technologically framework for understanding living systems, which are his patrons in New York. Um, so, okay, so I, I think it's interesting to me, this just gives some of his background. I did not actually realize, um, I don't know if you guys have heard of like the converso element, um, but I, I hadn't either until I stumbled across Rivera. This is actually um, his biography from the Jewish Virtual Library Project. Um, but he, the conversos were the people of Jewish faith who were forced converted during the Inquisition. Hmm. And then over the centuries, um, their religious practice was suppressed to, to varying degrees. And there were various campaigns of the Inquisition, like ramping up and then quieting down. And quite a number of them then later moved into Amsterdam in the Netherlands after the like 80 years war, I think, in Netherlands broke off. Um, and then they played a major role in maritime trade and the financial transactions. And then through that, a lot of them actually uh, within the conversion process became Je the Jesuits were the ones who were very accepting of the conversos. And so within Latin America and the missionary project, people who were looking to leave difficult situations then went to Latin America as Jesuits. And so evidently based now on all of the genetic testing, they're saying like up to a quarter of Latin America, like based on genetic like lineage at some point has converso DNA, like genetic heritage, which to me is, is actually quite, Interesting. And even up into the Southwest in New Mexico, it's quite a burgeoning area now that they have the genetic test. But it's this idea of um, sort of the fusion of Jewish faith, conversion, mess, you know, missionary, Catholic, finance, artistry, power systems. Like it's, it's quite interesting to me. So anyway, I did not know about conversos, but Rivera was within that. And so then he, he was, he was born, um, trained as a painter. The governor of Veracruz sent him to like sponsor him to go to Europe. He had quite a number of dalliances and various things in Europe and then um, learned, you know, worked in cubism and a number of things, uh, studied frescoes in Italy and then eventually sort of came back in the early twenties. Um, and so in 1907, the governor of Veracruz like sponsored him to go. Um, which is interesting to me, like how you came into these connections that the governor would be like, oh, yes, yes, you, we will send you abroad. You must have these connections. And again, his father was a high level mm -hmm. Mason. Um, now, this I would be interested if you guys are familiar with this, because I, I was not. Um, but looking at the, the public health systems in Latin America and the, the I was looking, trying to look into the role of Standard Oil and the Rockefellers in the oil industry and the revolution, because I think there's been some um, like uncertainty in investigations into the role potentially of the oil industry in financing interests in the Mexican revolution, because they had these oil interests that dated to the late 19th century. And their primary goal was some sort of stability and people that they could work with to secure their assets in terms of oil. Um, we know that the Rockefeller Foundation, like they created the first uh, school of public health, which was Johns Hopkins. They did a lot of predatory things in Puerto Rico um, around the same time. They actually, this, there's a really interesting article here 
like promoting the Rockefeller Foundation, but was saying, you know, they were speaking here, Eduardo, to what you were saying, or, or Kenny, I can't remember, but like that the revolution did not manifest in the ways that people thought, right? Like it, it was not as, it was more reformist than truly revolutionary. And what the Rockefellers did was that they funded an anti-yellow fever campaigns in key areas essentially to provide the government with funds to provide some public benefit around health that would make, lift up the government the, the, as um, supporters of the people in ways that they might be more likely to question them, but then they gave them something like, they gave them financial resources that the government did not have to create an outcome that people felt was beneficial uh, through the yellow fever campaigns, um, including in Veracruz, which is where Rivera was growing up, um, and was actually a major influence in the Mexican health system. So I think the colonization aspect of the oil industry's interest in establishing their presence in public health in Mexico, especially at this time of transition and establishing a new government that they could relate to and, and that they felt might be open to their oil interests, to me felt really important. And, and I know that later actually Rivera, and it might be before he went to California because I couldn't actually find images of those pictures, but he did a number of paintings for like the Mexican health department or like department of hygiene that were cellular related, like that they were these early, like he went into the United States already predisposed to having a certain level of interest in medical, the inter intersection of art and medicine. Can I like, just, let me just read this one paragraph. Um, uh, so the Rockefeller Foundation was vital in legitimizing the position of the new revolutionary Mexican state since the foundation's campaigns were instrumental in presenting the Mexican government as a motive force in the improvement of the health conditions of the population. The control of yellow fever was presented and perceived as a major manifestation of the Mexican states being congruent with the principles of the Mexican revolution and with the constitutional commitments it made in 1917 when it promised universal health care for Mexicans. So this idea of universal healthcare systems was, I think from the outset interwoven with the global North's financial interests in establishing its presence or in access points in, in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And Rivera, you know, was, was a, an, a, an actor in that space in conveying art, using art to, to talk about public health and, and lift that up as, as an area of public concern and interest. But, you know, this, again, another example of um, how uh, public health and public safety is used as an access point for, you know, having a presence of these capitalist uh, institutions, um, you know, um, and how, I mean, I, I don't understand, I, I don't know the degree of involvement besides, you know, setting up that, you know, yellow fever campaign, which, you know, makes me, brings up questions, you know, <laughs> in the context of COVID, you know, how was that played out? Was that actually, you know, happening? Was it a public uh, health crisis made up in order to create consensus in, in the population, you know, as the state being a force for good, right? For their own good, for their public safety. So um, so just questions that come up, but nonetheless, again, you see the, the presence of, 
these nonprofit organizations in a, like a, an imperial um, impetus, you know. Um, and you know, I see that all over the countries I've lived in, you know, been at uh, Guatemala, Nicaragua, and Mexico. Um, and so that's what comes to mind, you know, just like uh, public health as an access point to, you know, influence. Yeah, for for me, what comes up when I think, because I, I've seen the same things, and it's true. Like, if you look at the Chinese revolution uh, that Mao Zedong led, you will see the hands of Rockefeller, you will see the hands of U.S. capitalism in that. If you look at the Russian revolution, you will actually see the hands of Rockefeller, you will see the hands of the German capitalists in the, in the events of that. And people trip about that. And I don't trip about that, because... And this is because of what, because the world that Diego Rivera and Orozco, they are, even if they have different visions of how, what they're describing, they are looking at a world immersed, if you will, interpenetrated by essentially, a, 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 in my mind, a capitalist world, but one populated by humans. And so what, what do people imagine that any human activity that we do, whether it be individual or collective, is not going to have some interpenetration with people who are looking to to do to do ill to it to to direct it in some other way why would they not if and the, my problem sometimes with where some of the folks who write these things is they write out essentially even if i don't think the mexican mexican revolution um produced the kind of revolution that it certainly didn't produce the one that was going to write create the kind of history that the people who were struggling for it were trying to make one that where they would be where they were self-directing their lives for the rest of their time and, and they had that vision for all of humanity, I imagine. Like, it wasn't just for Mexicans. I believe that many of them were probably animated with the idea of world revolution, um, even if they weren't socialists. And so I feel like what starts to get written out by visions that say Rockefeller comes in or Soros comes in or U.S. comes in, starts to write out, write those people out of, of history um, because they lost and they did lose. Uh, they didn't, they did not achieve the aims that they ultimately needed to achieve. And we know that because here we are sitting about to be data, having everyone being data mined by these people at the top. So that's my problem is that if we change the world, if we are capable and are able to change the world, we have to understand we will be doing it with the fingers of the, of our opponents deep in our work, deep in whatever we do, trying to misdirect it and redirect it. It's just that if we are able to kind of create a world that is actually free, they will have failed. It won't be because their fingers aren't in there. It will be because their fingers are in there and their fingers weren't enough to stop the world we were trying to create. And so that's my one issue I take with the, not you, Allison, but this is riff. I see this all the time with people kind of going like, well, they did this and they did this. And this was all just a, a, a sigh up that. And I'm like, what gets written out of it is actually the intentions and the actual actions of people who were trying to change the world. Yes. In some cases, someone so got, and you can see it also in, in Nicaragua when people talk about the movement against Daniel Ortega, and they talk about it as, as only being directed by the CIA. And when I know the CIA is in there, I know it for a fact, but that doesn't well, change. It doesn't change the fact that there are people there also who have a different vision of what they're trying to do, even if the U.S. has got its fingers in the pie. Because if we change this world, I guarantee you, Europe, European capitalists, Chinese, U.S., all in our stuff. They just the question will be: Will we be able to make that change despite it? That's that's what comes up to me at least. 
Well, I would say, I mean, for me, the, the reason I think it's particularly relevant is because they were working specifically in Veracruz, which is the governor of Veracruz sponsored Rivera to go be trained. And then literally the Rockefellers brought Rivera to New York. And then I'm sure like working closely with Ford, like when we're looking at the vaccine mural, the idea that their interests were not simply oil interests, but literally public health interests who were directly in the geography where he was. And then like pulled him out of Mexico and brought him to the US. So to me, it's not just a vague generality. It's more, what is the context in which he is producing this art? And the context is that his patron has very direct interest in the geographies in which he's operating. And then at what point do individual artists choose to like what choices do do people make right do you do you do you decide like hey i'm gonna take my revolutionary message to the new yorkers or to the people of detroit or am i gonna stay here with the people and like do the work i'm doing which is create these big public murals and and then he does come back later Um, I, i think the the thing for me though is that diego rivera i would say a sincere artist who like kenny you know said in early like into into physics, into quantum this, into these things because they're cool. Mm. That, that makes sense to me that they would they would reach out to him versus a Rusko, right? It makes sense to me that with an artist who believes that this world of the miniature that is being ex- exposed by capitalist technology, but who who is being who is like who is um, who thinks there's something amazing in it, and who's thinking there's something possible in it, I can understand how agents of the state would say, you're the right guy for this job as we go do this. It doesn't necessarily require a, um, uh, which I think is implied, like that, that literally his work is founded on undermining the, um, these movements of people. The, the people who want to do that can find the proper vehicles for that. And I think Diego Rivera, as a socialist who thinks that all these things are magical and can be used, for good, I can see how they can use such a person. the richest people in the world. <laughs> right, but I can see how they could use such a person to um, to maybe yeah. to do harm. Yeah, they knew who they were looking for. I think. You know, it, it kind of brings me back to my reality, like in San Francisco, with fellow organizers. You know, the organizers that get the most uh, audience. You know, in in you know whose voices are, you know, amplified tend to be the ones chosen by this, the, 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 the powers that we're fighting. You know, there's some organizers here that, you know, who started similarly, they now have platforms, but they're working with like the Wells Fargo, they're working with uh, Old Navy, you know, and, and people, again, think they're radical. But again, the way I see it is just like you mentioned, it's, it's, they're chosen to undermine, you know, uh, the, the more radical aspects of, you know, what people are trying to do. But they're not like these people, they weren't created in the lab by Wells Fargo. These are people that Wells Fargo, they observe and say, oh, we could use this. Like, we see this voice. We see this voice influencing others. This is a voice that ultimately, we, I think we could utilize if we can amplify it and we could use it for our aims. It's not like, that's the problem. It's like, sometimes I think people are thinking of these folks as created by the by our opponents, but they're not. They're actually 
like me and you, sincere in wanting to change these things and don't recognize when they've crossed a threshold we didn't even know we crossed from it, fighting the system to being used by it. it. And I think that's, again, the job of us, you know, the people here is to bring those people, because I don't think like, for example, the people I'm talking about in our community in San Francisco, they're not, I don't think they're, uh, they mean harm. They actually think they're doing well, but they are not part of the conversation. They're isolated and used as token, just like, you know, the people in Imperial Africa, right? Like the ones chosen to direct those uh, societies that were to be formed anew, you know? Um, so I agree that they're not just created in the lab, they are chosen and they, but yet they are counter-revolutionary, you know? And, and so they do have free will. Um, and I'm not, you know, same with the, 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 the leaders of countries, right? Like, I'm not a person that's gonna be like, you know, um, uh, just saying, oh, it's just all the US. No, the, the, the ruling classes are complicit in this, you know, in, in, in you know, in, in their, but they, there is also power dynamic as to who gets to choose, who gets amplified and be, to be the voice of the, of the, of the people. Well, but I want to say, I'm going to go a little further. I'm going to put me on the, on, the, on the block and say that I'm, my soul is up for, is like, it's not just Diego Rivera, whose soul is up for, on the scales. My soul is on the scales. On Friday, I've got a trial. And on Friday, the district may say to me, you know what? Well, you can stay alive in this game. We're willing to, if you sign on the dotted line, we'll just put this on written. We won't put it in data form. We'll put it in written form. We'll keep your information about your vaccination status in your file as written form, not on a smart sheet. Will that work? And Eduardo, you and I have already talked that through. I say, I'm going to do that. Of course, I say I'm going to do that because I, I can fight later in the struggle. But possibly, I've actually already crossed the line. Possibly, once I've signed that piece of paper and put it in there, I've become essentially Diego Rivera for the CIA, working down to fuck up the Mexican Revolution. I just don't know it. And that's the thing I'm talking about, is that this is the world we live in. Like, we are faced with all sorts of assaults. We're trying to figure out how to navigate in the context of it. What thing is a compromise where our soul has been sold? What thing is a compromise where the struggle continues? What thing is a, is a compromise we can't possibly make? And I don't think people know those answer to those questions. I'll fucking tell you, I don't know the answer to that question because I'm going to face that shit possibly Friday. Frankly, I don't think I'm going to face it because I think they want to can my ass. So I'm not going to face it. But if I do face it, that question, I don't have an answer to that question. I'm going to find out once I do it and then we see what happens. Does the Do I actually play a role that I hope to play in stopping vaccinations of, of students and things like that or organizing my colleagues? Or did I actually cross a line that essentially makes me no longer even worth listening to because I cut a deal with the district who we know is the enemy? So I don't know. I get frustrated. That's what I'm going to say, because people feel like it's so fucking easy and it isn't easy. And I know you're not saying that, Kenny. And I know you're not saying that, Allison, but that's where sometimes the rewriting of history from these sorts of things sometimes annoys me because it, it takes out all the fucking compromises and decisions people had to make who actually were struggling for it, you know, when they're trying to like live and they are fighting with, you know, a system that's trying to kill them. I don't, that stakes aren't as high for me on Friday, but anyway. I mean, but realistically, he, he is choosing to work with the most elite, powerful class to develop it. I mean, it's not just a small thing. Like, yeah. so, and, and it's not just random. Like, these are people who are doing business 
in the geography that he was in. So I, I mean, yeah. I'm just going to sort of walk through some other, like, <laughs> he, he spent like 15 years in Europe, right? So 1907-08, go to Europe, learn some things, right? And I don't know exactly how he supports himself during this whole time, but he experiments with a lot of different things with cubism. And I would say in the early modern period, this idea of the metaphysical, right? Like material reality. I think to me, cubism and modern art and the idea that reality may not be exactly how we see it, or there are different elements. That's an important part of the story because later on in the murals, the cubism stuff all goes away, but he was experimenting with that. Like what is reality when you're working in cubism? What is reality when you're, you know, a theosophy, you know, Rosicrucian or working in the sort of, you know, Kandinsky, like early modern Kabbalistic, spiritual sided, like what is really real? What is spiritual? What is material? How do you express it? Like to me, that feels really important. Now, he was there a long time. He was there for 15 years. Like I said, he had multiple kids <laughs> by several women. I mean, he spent a lot of time, you know, the, the modern art movement and the, the abstract art movement was coming out of a spiritual practice, something that was beyond the material. So this is theosophy, but looking at Kandinsky, Mondrian, all of these movements are going on at the same time. So to, to look at his heroic, very detailed work, I think it's important to remember his early origins were in the cubist modernist abstract frame. And then, um, so in 1919, he met um, Cisqueros, who was the third well-known muralist. And they talked about the, the need for this new, unique Mexican style of art based on the pre-Columbian cultures. And then he, they came, they went, they traveled together, or no, they didn't travel, but Rivera went through Italy. So that's the whole fresco pr premise, was he picked it up in Italy um, and, then, and then went back to Mexico to do this. But he, it says, you know, whatever. He broke all contact with his friends, girlfriends, and children after 14 years. So like, I'm just saying, like, if, if part of this is like being the good person, right? Like this is someone who can go establish relationships, have children, do, and then just like walk away and then go back and do some other thing, right? This is the kind of guy he is, right? For better or for worse, like you can decide if that's somebody you would want to be in a relationship with, but that's, that's part of his backstory. And so he went back and it's interesting because this first mural, uh, which was called Creation, I guess, and I thought that it got destroyed, but but maybe not. Um, I think this is actually it. It's quite mystical. Like it's not abstract, not cubist. Mm -hmm. um, I would say very much more in alignment with sort of a mystical Rosicrucian-y kind of ideal. Um, and so he, he's very diverse. He has many different approaches to his artwork. Um, and yeah, so it, this says, I thought it was destroyed, but it, it says La, La Creación in Seni Delfonso. So this is his like earliest muralist type of work, which is, is unique. Um, and then this is the, the slide where I'd say in 1927, so he was invited as a member of the Mexican Communist Party to go to, um, to Russia and for the, the October Revolution. But as you said, like Andy mentioned before, it didn't work out that well. And so my, I guess my question in some of this is, um, I don't know how much time, like in his time in Paris and his time in Italy that he was really involved in communist socialist thought or philosophy. 
I mean, it sounds like whatever it was, it didn't manifest in the way he had thought. And it said that he, he, I mean, it, in this, this is from, I think the museum of modern art, but that like of that, his whole nine months, he had some watercolors, <laughs> which to me, if it was like, you know, really big, he would have, you know, done, done more. Um, yeah, this was out of the MoMA exhibit. And, and so here at the bottom, it says Abby Aldrich Rockefeller bought the sketchbook from, I mean, this is like the irony, right? Like he goes to Russia with the communists and the Rockefellers buy a sketchbook to fund his trip to New York <laughs> later. So that that it's an interesting like use of art as a commodity, right? As a point of leverage. Now, whether, you know, it's like, let me make an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> You know, especially if the Rockefellers are tight with Veracruz, where he's from, it's like, well, you can either be our star or we can bury you, you know, like maybe that was the offer that was made. I don't, I don't know, but clearly very um, impressive people. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't see like to me, Diego Rivera just seems like, if you will, <laughs> a sincere artist who, who, uh, you know, who's driven by his passions, uh, the, his love of the material world, his sense of possibility of it. Um, obviously the, the spiritual side, he, he, he fast, he was an atheist, right? But then he, he would get into the, he would get into the, the, the resolution mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. And, um, but I think even Orozco was like, he recognized that the um, Diego Rivera, he called him an outright opportunist in terms of, you know, being the person who was trying to like uh, essentially um, monopolize the uh, the fresco world and the the and get and find all the best opportunities for putting his stuff up on up on people's walls and have and create a, a series of acolytes underneath him who would then all praise him. You know, so that's something Orozco recognized in Diego Rivera, and I think that sort of character, as as Eduardo knows, in our own union with our current vice president, that kind of character who's a person who is moved, moved by the socialist spirit, if you will, but can be turned, that can be turned very quite easily into opportunism without the person necessarily knowing when that switch happened. Um, and we see it time and time and time again. If you look at our trade union movement and you look at the leaders right now in our trade union movement, you'll see it rife with reds, all of them, you know, and, and anarchists as well. And they're all doing it under the same thing, which is if I get there, I can do more good up there and I can sprinkle down revolution from below. Um, and what happens is they get transformed. They become essentially, uh, you know, tools again of the, of the machine itself. And so that's how these ideas get turned on their heads to the rest of us when these socialist leaders speak the, the, speak the words of our capitalist masters out of their mouth without having to ever... You don't even know when they sold their soul. It just it's just part of that process. Well, I know it's getting late. Let me let me <laughs> click through a couple. So, you know, again, just going back that um, you know, they helped, you know, Trotsky, you know, come to Mexico. And I think eventually they were there for a while and then that relationship went a bit sour. And then Siskiros, I think, was the one that tried to assassinate Trotsky unsuccessfully, and it got pinned on Rivera and he like fled the country. But, um, you know, I think Siskiros was the one who was like the hardcore communist, like Rivera never measured up to like this expectation. And then like, you know, he like almost gets pinned, have a murder pinned on him. Although but, people um, are kind of wondering if if he might have been helping out on the side, right? Like have, there's some, been some people who think Diego Rivera might have been 
not as in opposition to it as people imagine. So, I don't know. Well, I mean, the guy was having an affair with his wife too yeah. at yeah. some point. I mean, although they were all sleeping around a lot, like who knows if it was like tantric sex or whatever, but there was a lot. Um, yeah, there's a lot going on there, but I mean, so there's a lot, there's a lot of drama around it, but I guess my questions still somewhat on with Rivera is like how much of it was like a deeply philosophical understanding of socialist politics and how much of it was part of his larger persona um, because he seemed to sort of fall in and out of those circles depending on where he was in his trajectory. I just um, want to say quickly say people can visit the uh, Siquiero uh, Estudio Museum in Cuernavaca where I grew up by. Oh, oh cool. Yeah, yeah. they can go visit it's the next museum. But I, and I think it's also just Remember, like, if I understand the alternatives at that point, you're essentially, okay, they were anarchists, but you were either a Stalinist or a Trotskyist. And the Stalinists, you know, that might seem like a bad word. That was just the Communist Party, like, which was the, which was, that was the apparatus you were part of at that time. If you wanted to be a trade union activist fighting against racism in the South, you were a communist. Like, that's what you did. And that's in the 30s. So, but, but all these politics are and that's true. This is true for the, the the Stalinists, the Communist Party, but this is also true for the Trotskyists. All of them see this through the lens of productivity of the Soviet Union. If we, if there's high level of productivity in the Soviet Union, that's a step forward for socialism. That's a step forward for the revolution. And so everyone's caught in that matrix, like everyone. Maybe there were some anarchists who weren't. And like I think of some people in the workers' opposition in 1919 who were killed and died who weren't for Lenin or Trotsky, but went a, wanted another way to renew the revolution that happened in 1917. Maybe there were some folks there who, who had an independent path, but pretty much after, by 1921, everyone's caught under the web of some version of thinking that the Soviet Union is some version of socialism, some version of a worker state, even if it's got some problems with it, and that, it, and that its advancement in and of itself is an advancement for the revolutionary cause of workers. And so, Everyone's trapped in that in that in that view. Um, so there was that's that's hegemonic. There was there was no other view that I know of that's ever survived that's been written down from that time that where somebody said, you know what, neither this nor that, but this. And um, he was also Rosicrucian at that time too, right? Right. <laughs> Until in the fifties, they're like dude, what were you doing with that? So like he was balancing these two things. Right, but just to say that revolution. The, the the defeat of the Russian Revolution, you know, and I, I still would say there was something, there was a period for me, at least, that in which it did, did represent actual the beginnings of liberation. But the fact that that thing went away from liberation and became something else, that hung on every revolutionary in the United States and around the world for the remainder of the 20s and 30s. Um, and people didn't know what to do except to say, well, do, am I against this revolution? Am I for this revolution? It's what people do with Cuba sometimes now. Um, and so it, it represented a puzzle that a lot of people couldn't get their minds out of. I haven't read the whole biography. I mean, here, this was a, a biography of him where they were saying that his colleagues were in Mexico were like, uh, he's the guy that's working with all the big capitalists. So like the questions were, were there, you know, I would assume that's, you know, and you know, he was, he was dinner partying with the Fords, you know, that's, you know, that was, that was the, the, his trajectory, his trajectory. Um, so these are more about specific paintings. So maybe this would be the um, time to For take a second. 
and then and then we can come back to it if you guys are up for it like yeah the more specific I, I was thinking the same thing which is this this would be a good uh end point um and then yeah. we need to proceed because there's some really interesting stuff that goes on after that yeah, I'm sorry. It took a, like I'm not a good judge of length, and I don't mean to dominate like all of your shows. But uh huh. <laughs> <I>, no, really. <laughs> we need a. I know, what do you think? I mean, I think he's really interesting. I mean. Oh yeah, this story this, is fascinating. Yeah, for me, this is kicking up a lot of questions, um, and uh, that I don't have answers to. Like just straight up, like straight up, that's what comes up for me. Well, why don't we continue this discussion in a part two of this, uh, this, this, this specific Andigo Rivera? Uh, so is this a good place for us to pause, no? I appreciate oh. your, your flexibility, guys. No, I yeah. appreciate everyone's flexibility here. Thank you for your work. This is a lot. Yeah. And I, I want to get to this stuff because there's some other pictures that I think are so cool to get to. And already, this has already done more to open my mind up about things uh than i thought it would do so <laughs> Just, i want to uh, carry i want to continue on in this in this way i have a number of people who are really interested in this conversation so i mean i'm excited to be able to yeah have it and share it out because you guys are awesome conversations. <laughs> <laughs> two socialists here I know. well i mean and you have like background there is I, I guess I didn't fully appreciate that because I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm just sort of blundering in and making sort of leaps into the stuff that I know about, but yeah, yeah it's been a really nice conversation. Yeah. Well, that's what works for me about this is you're familiar with socialism, but that's not where, that's not what's animating what you, what your creations are come are, are that's not animating your creations. And that has animated my political creations in my mind, but in coming into contact with the way you're doing it, it's just, it's forcing me to open up uh, and think about, okay, what still holds what I believe, but what needs to just be like kind of re-looked at. And that's, that's what I, it's what's challenging about this, but it's what I enjoy about. It. Well, knowing your professional background better about the, the micro, it, <laughs> Yeah, I can see how it was really hard. <laughs> um, I, I respect your willingness to look into it or reconsider it. So <laughs> none of us have the answers either. All right. Well, let's 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 conclude here, and um, and then we will continue the discussion on Monday. And I appreciate Alison having come on here. So that does it for this week's episode. Uh, part two of this discussion will continue on until next week. And uh, we will have that discussion with Alison. Uh, Alison McDowell, as I had said in the intro, is um, a blogger. She's a researcher. She's a mother, and she studied everything else, everything in uh, in her effort in trying to figure out how public education was being slowly uh, being taken over by uh, by uh, technocratic uh, educational technologies and harvesting data. Uh, you can find Alison's work at Wrench Wrenching the Gears. Uh, we will link that in the episode notes and uh, we expect to have more lively discussions in the lesson about other topics as well. So check us out for that. <laughs> Always transforming this, <laughs> what's left. All right. 
So West Left is a weekly political podcast that's channel challenging the mainstream left. We post information about our topics and our guests in the episode notes where we found this episode or on our blog at wet-s-left.webnote.com. You can find past episodes to this podcast channel there and connect with us. If you like anything you've heard here, please subscribe to our share your favorite episode, subscribe, rate, review. Uh, to our podcast, Spotify, um, on Spotify, iTunes Podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, or on BitChute, Odyssey, O-D-Y-S-E-E, YouTube, or Telegram. And if you would like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, contact us through our blog. I'm Eduardo Barca with co-host uh, Andy Lipson and Kenny Cepeda. Thank you all very much. Alison, a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Ciao.